Fishies, your your favorite subversive subversive analysis podcast. <laughs> I like it. Right. <sighs> anyway, uh, how's life going, Lunchy? Oh, uh, you know. How about you? Uh, I'm, uh yeah. I'm a little under the weather. I think uh, my environment's making me sick. That'll happen. That'll happen. <laughs> yep. Yep. There's been a lot of weird kind of connections between my life and all the artwork I've been consuming these days. It's kind of what made um, safe really land for me. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, I could see that. But yeah, thanks for introducing me to Todd Haynes, my friend. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, yeah, we should probably introduce. This week we're going to be talking about Todd Haynes. Uh, we're talking about the... Um, Superstar, a Karen Carpenter story, the uh, the uh, student film of Haynes. Um, then we're going to be doing Safe and uh, the most recent May December. Um, and you'd never seen any of these before, so you'd never seen, you know, no, you'd seen a couple of Haynes, you said, but n- n- none of these. Well, I've seen Far from Heaven, and that was a long time ago, though. I didn't know it was a Haynes movie, and yeah, it didn't open up any kind of doors for. Exploring Haynes or anything like that, but what was interesting about these three that you chose are that they do sort of span his whole career. Um, yeah, like Superstars 87, that's kind of like one of his earliest movies. I think his third short film, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but the one that actually got him first like recognized, correct? Right. It's, yeah. It's kind of like notoriety. His, yeah, his notoriety. And then you got Safe, which is 95, somewhere more in like the middle of his career i guess now you could call him still closer to the beginning but but then may december which was released on netflix only a couple months ago so you wanted to go chronologically and start with superstar yeah totally totally so you've never seen this before what was your what were your first impressions of uh of superstar well one thing that was difficult about it was something that you prepared me for which is there's no real like clear copy or transfer of this available right kind of had to like watch it on youtube in this really sort of distorted form i guess it kind of feels like somebody might have had it on a vhs tape that was like you know and there's like new it's not there's not only one there there's like a few of them but like they all are really bad transfers right right so generally all of these are like seventh generation dubs on vhs or like from the original yeah. vhs tape that had been dubbed so many times that it had been ruined and whatever um mm-hmm. and i think yeah. it was shot on tape in the first place or like so it, it was not oh uh, yeah you know, i was wondering about that because it's an 80s thing right so i was like is this actually shot on film or did you shoot this on tape and there's no real way of no telling from this transfer watching it on youtube now but i was i was curious about that right right so 
I think it was shot on video in the first place, but even even if it wasn't, the point is it was it was never stored uh, properly on film, and that was largely because of a lawsuit uh, against the movie by the Carpenter Foundation. Um, uh, so her yeah, brother, that makes sense. Um, what's his name? Karen Carpenter's brother, um, Richard. Richard. Yeah. So Richard. Richard, Richard uh, was so so sort of offended by the film um that he is the one that sued and basically kept it out of rotation forever um but i think that contributed I'm not to entirely it having, surprised that he was offended right of course of course um, but <laughs> the the he also like didn't have any rights to any of the carpenter's music which he just uses completely with you know no you know no rights at all um yeah, but it wouldn't work without doing using exactly. music, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he didn't have rights to her story or anything either. So, like, mm-hmm. this was yeah, yeah, a completely yeah. illegal sort of project. But I, I believe it was a student project. Um, and I think that the fact that this got, you know, this court case around it or whatever and it got banned um, contributed to its sort of continual sort of success. You know what I mean? It's a sought-after sort mm-hmm. of banned movie. Um, and so people try and find it and whatever and yeah the only version that's available is this really really shitty version but like still as far as like shitty you know student movies from the 80s are concerned like way more people are seeing this than anything else (laughs) you know what i mean just because it's actually been banned by the carpenter foundation i think yeah there's that aspect to it and it also is kind of a like gimmicky movie where he uses Barbie dolls to create dramatizations of all of it. So it has like a weird kind of heightened yet removed feeling in that way. I mean, totally. I don't know, like if, if I don't know if anyone had done it before or whatever, but it feels like one of those ideas where you're like, of course somebody did this. Is this the guy who did it? Was it ever done before or since? Whatever, it doesn't matter. I guess this is the one. This is the guy who like. Right. reenacted uh, this really fucked up domestic suburban nightmare with Barbie dolls. Right, right. But that's kind of what stood out to me about it. What um, is this idea of it being a sort of suburban nightmare? Um, I, do, I like Basically, I knew nothing about the Carpenters. Obviously, I'd heard about them, but they were never really like a band I was into. Right, right. So They're totally... Like a saccharine, kitschy bullshit. Like, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that there's yeah, a certain, yeah. like, beautiful, amazing pop quality to it. Um, oh, yeah. But part of the thing that I think is interesting is that Haynes is a guy who recently he came out with a documentary on the Velvet Underground. Um, and he's done, you know, a Bowie movie and a. Uh, um, Bob Dylan movie mm-hmm. and it seems like he is into sort of cool you know underground pop culture sort of counterculture sort of stuff um, so mm-hmm. the the idea of choosing Karen Carpenter as the, the lead of the story and sort of highlighting this really sweet saccharine poppy you know stuff for middle America um I think it's interesting because the, the thing that I think is really interesting is that um, he says, Todd Haynes says that he's a big fan um, of the Carpenters and Karen Carpenter and whatever, and that he wanted to tell this story. Okay. But I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I find it, I find it interesting that a guy who's really much like he's an, he's a velvet underground guy um, would be so into the Carpenters as well, you know, in an unironic yeah, way. Yeah. 
Um, mm-hmm. Is so, it unironic? Like, so he's a, he's actually a fan of the Carpenters, yet he would make this, which doesn't paint them in a good light at all, and kind of is really like mean spirited in a way. Well, that's the thing that I think is really interesting. Is apparently at the screenings. Um, Todd Haynes has said when people were like laughing at this movie, he was shocked, you know what I mean? Um, that people would laugh at this. Um, but I find that hard to believe. I just, I, I, I don't really, I don't believe him when he says that. I do feel like this is somebody who's a Velvet Underground guy who's making a movie about this bullshit. <laughs> um, and it feels like empty and bullshit, <laughs> you know? Um, it, like the the characters being portrayed by Barbie dolls, like they could not be more. I don't know. It, it's like a parody of them. One dimensional. You know I mean? Yeah, they're incredibly yeah. one dimensional characters, and like the idea that you're portraying them with Barbie dolls is like only going to make them more one dimensional and like kitschy and yeah, like yeah. obnoxious. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, there's no there's no like facial expressions. There's no like blocking or body movements. Like most of the time, the the characters are like. I mean, somebody is like. There's no stop motion animation. You know, like somebody's kind of just like holding the Barbie dolls from right. below camera and like kind of like bopping them up and down, just like the way you would play with your dolls. Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And like, there's no real human connection there. Right. You know, you're always distant. But honestly. For me, like, it's interesting you say that because, like, I personally did find it to be a, a terrifying piece. Okay. Like, I didn't find it to be, like, funny or cute or anything. Like, I, like it, to me, it read like a death trip, like something right. really psychedelic and, like, manic and satanic. Right, right. Um, in a way that's like, yeah, sure, it's like... It's like the cadence of the voice acting is almost like sitcom level stupid, you know. It's just like, hi, Karen. Hi, Richard. Let's go. You know, it's all like, yeah, yeah. I'm anorexic, and like it's and all the dialogue like, as written as well is just like you're gonna live a at Wikipedia home. Article. You're gonna live at home, and like, yeah, yeah. It's really, yeah. but like, there's something about that, like that to me made it all seem so much more scary and disturbing, especially because it all does just begin with the like point of view shot of her mother finding her dead. Right. And like, it's all kind of framed as this like scary death trip thing of just being so trapped and like lost in this sickness that Karen Carpenter has. And it's one dimensional in that way too, where it's so just focused on her anorexia and right. almost nothing else. Right. I mean, yeah, there's, like, they have, like, the faux talking heads talking about, like, her, like, how great she, her, of a voice she had. And they have the, the parts that are kind of talking about, like, how they represent this, like, the Nixon era of, like, conservatism coming back to, like, defeat the hippies, basically, whatever, you know? And, like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff. And, you know, even using the term fascism to describe anorexia. Mm-hmm. Like body fascism, the, the yeah. mind, body, body fascism and whatever. And, like, yeah, so there's other themes there. But it's, like, very heavily focused on this anorexia thing and the sickness that she has and, like, how that completely, like, defines her. Totally. And, like, that's just, like, a sort of terrifying, like, space to inhabit, you know? Um, it's depressing. <laughs> no, totally, totally. I totally agree. 
Um, but I think that the movie sees that as an extension of this suburban sort of environment. You know what I mean? So we're seeing mm-hmm. this degradation, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it's like an extension of the way that she is in her family and like that control that she doesn't have and that sort of thing. And I also think that the music is connected to that as well. Like that it's this Nixon, you know, response to the questioning of authority. Instead, it's just like saccharine bullshit. Um, uh-huh. But I think that to try to get the country back on track, you know, after the very tumultuous late sixties. Totally, totally. Um, and I think that her values, like, at, you know, in 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 juxtaposition with like the hippies' values or whatever, like she basically doesn't have any values or personality or sense of self at all. <laughs> like she in this movie is just somebody who's just yeah, like, yeah. oh, I have a pretty voice and like I can be pretty. Like I just I just want to be thin and whatever. Like and that's all that she well, is. She. She expresses wanting to like move out of move away from home and go right. to places, and their parents won't let her. Like, there is enough there to suggest this like caged bird thing. Exactly. You know, like this this young girl who like becomes famous at a young age and like ends up having all this like body dysmorphia, and her parents are very conservative, and they want them to stay at home and use their money to reinvest back into the community, and like all these things. Like it's very focused on that kind of like those conservative American ideals and how they are trapping this young person from, you know, finding who they are or like exploring or becoming anything more than this caged bird. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Um, no, I think that's true. I think that, I think that you see all of the things that make her this way. Um, but mm-hmm. you don't see any, any evidence of that, like, inner life or anything. Like, and I think that that's part of the commentary is, mm-hmm. like, that she's so sure, repressed yeah. that she doesn't have this inner life. And that basically I think that the thing that connects all of these, the music, the politics, the family life, her personality, her, like, everything, is just banality. Like, I think that that's part of the thing yeah, that yeah. he's really highlighting in this movie. And, like, by saying, like, that he's a fan of Karen Carpenter, it's like, well, I mean, so am I. I she's got a she's got a great voice and whatever. Um but mm-hmm. I think that part of what we're talking about is being a fan of utter banality as well. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that, like, she sure. and her beliefs and her music and her everything is just, like, this utter banality and sort of narcissism and just, like, so, like you know what I mean? It's this, I don't know. Like, it's a, it's a disgusting thing to kind of put on a pedestal. You know what I mean? And I think that this movie that mm-hmm. like, and I think specifically when we're talking about the anorexia in this movie, right? Like, cause that's really what it's focusing on. I mean, it's, it's about Karen Carpenter, but as a case study for anorexia so that we can like put info, like in, um, you know, just text on screen explaining what anorexia is and that it's a problem <laughs> and like that, text that you can barely read person. half the time. Yeah. yeah. And you can barely read it half the time, which apparently even in the original cut, you could barely read, um, well, well, of course, you can tell that it's like black on black and right. shit. Like they, they specifically chose like black text to like overlay an image that has black in it and stuff. It's like that was always going to disappear. Right, right. And it, it feels it feels like that's on purpose. Um, you get enough of the information to like understand the the paragraph or whatever it is that's on the screen. Right, and it's just saying something that's like basic and banal anyway. That's like people who have anorexia don't want to eat food. 
this is like a part of their symptoms or that they're repressed and like that they don't see their bodies the way other people do or whatever. Like, they, you know what I mean? And they even well, ask, that, like, is, that is part of when it mentions the fascism against the body. And like, and yeah. I think that's an important thing to know because it's the need to have control right. over something. Right. Right. You know, and like this control over self-destruction as a pretty modern sickness. Exactly. Mod- like, I, I don't know. I think that's the thing of like the, the story that like uh, Superstar is telling is one of a person who is sick because of the modern world and modern conditions, except she goes to the doctor and like no doctor is ever going to be like, well, the, uh, the root of the the root of the sickness is the world you live in. <laughs> you know, right, right. it's like no, it's you have this disease. It's called anorexia, and you can treat it by like not taking Xlax first of all, but also going to this like health clinic and like getting back on a healthy schedule and whatever. But like none of that's going to change the fact that she's going to come back to those parents in that house and that world that like made her sick. You know, right, right. That like created the banality that she like is reckoning with. And I don't know, and she doesn't know that either. It's like no one's there to tell her. It's like, actually, it's everything. It's like it's this entire environment you grew up in and that like that molded you is like why you're sick, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, but I, think, I think that it's why you're sick, but it's also why you're boring. You know what I mean? Like, I, yes. think, that, I think that it's also why well, you don't have... Well, the boredom is part of the sickness, right? Why you don't have, like, perspective to get out to people in your music and, like, why your music is reflective yeah, yeah, of, yeah. like, nothing except, like, rainy days and Mondays and whatever. I mean, it's all stuff that, like, she didn't write. Like, I don't know. I mean, they're all, they're all love songs. Yeah. Um, and we don't see any evidence of her ever having a relationship in the film or anything like that. So we don't see any she connection to the music. She has one relationship, right? She has one relationship with a guy that ends pretty quickly. Right. Whatever. They do t- mention that. Right, right. But you don't, I don't know. It's not, you, like, it's not about her and her music and the fact that there's this thing that gets in the way no, of no, this beautiful yeah. thing that is her. Um, it's like... There's this thing sure. in the modern world that creates people like this. And these people mm-hmm. yeah. are, I mean, in this case, I think this person is being depicted as like utterly banal. Just like the the most, mm-hmm. has nothing to say about anything except that she's just so obsessed with like how thin she is. And that's literally it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that like, I don't know. I, I think I think basically if you're looking at like, I don't know, if you're looking at, like, Columbine or something, you're looking at, like, uh, some, some sort of, like, phenomenon of something horrible that happens in, in, in the news, and it's, like, a celebrity, like, I don't know. Columbine's a situation where we look at these people, and what we did in the news cycle was we ended up sort of romanticizing the struggle of these school shooters, um, where mm-hmm. we looked into Dylan Klebold and whatever and, like, found that they were bullied and all this stuff and they had this inner life. And how how did we make these monsters? These hor- Like, how did this horrible, monstrous thing happen? And what is it that caused this and blah, blah, blah. And, like, th- through trying to figure that out, there's, like, a romanticization of that. Um, even if it's sure. a, a yeah, negative yeah. romanticization, it's still, like, giving some sort of a romanticization to that idea. Um, and I think similarly, if you're talking about anorexia... Um, you could either talk about anorexia as like, oh, it's such a romantic disease of these people that are so 
so sensitive and so beautiful that they, and they need to have some sort of like control over their lives. But then this is just this thing that's getting in the way of all this other stuff that they could be doing. And what, but like, instead this movie is kind of showing us like anorexia is like the dumbest, most banal fucking disease by the dumbest, most banal woman that has ever been in pop culture. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of like, mm-hmm. there's like nothing going on here except that she has this like completely one note obsession that kills her. Um, and sure. Yeah. It like, isn't depicted in a way that is like so romantic and tragic and whatever. It's like literally just depicted as like, wait, she's still talking about that. Like, it's like every single scene is just like, yeah, but I just don't want to eat. And like, Oh, I'm worried about going out to this thing because I might have to eat there or something. And it's like, this is, it's not depicted in a way that is in any way romantic. Um, I think it's depicted mm-hmm. in a way that's totally mm-hmm. like, this is dumb. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And I yeah, think, honestly, yeah. and like... Richard seems just as dumb, you know? Like, he's always just saying, like, you should eat something. Why don't you eat? Yeah, what, yeah. are you trying to ruin our careers? Are you trying to ruin our lives? Right, right. And you don't, <laughs> you don't have any real empathy for anybody in this story because they're all just depicted as like well when an anorexic feels this way they try to get help and then people don't understand them and they are just like telling them to eat and then telling them to eat just makes them so Mm -hmm. much worse and it's like it's just a depiction of this but i think that it's interesting to depict it this way because if you look at like the okay so so karen carpenter is kind of like one of the first like instances of like somebody dying of anorexia in like the media you know what I mean? Like, anorexia mm-hmm. was not a thing uh, before this. Like, there have always been mm-hmm. women watching their weight and whatever. Weight Watchers have been a thing. There was diet pills in the 50s and what, 40s. But, like, this was kind of the first thing that launched the whole anorexia bulimia craze um, that, you mm-hmm. know, took over through the, like, late 80s and th- throughout the 90s specifically. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that really you can depict that the way that it was depicted in most media as like a very empathetic depiction of a young girl who's dealing with something that's hard and whatever. But I think that then you get it, it's it's kind of like a meme. You know what I mean? Then there are girls out there who are like, oh, I'm troubled, too. I want to like I identify with this and they adapt and they develop the disease themselves because it's a romantic sort of thing. Um, whereas if it was depicted as just like the way that it is in Superstar, where it's like, this is fucking dumb. Just look at it, dude. Like just unblinkingly look at what's happening here without any of the romanticization around it. Like, and it's so dumb. (laughs) Like, and I kind of feel like that is much better for people. Um, sort of like if that was the main way that this was depicted in the media, like, I don't think that anorexia and bulimia would have been an issue in the nineties, the way that it became one. Um, and I, I, I really think that that's, that's kind of an interesting way I think of framing the conversation, because I think that basically Todd Haynes, he was like a semiotics major. Um, I'm pretty sure at Brown, but like, basically like when, when I look at his movies, I'm always thinking about like how he's constructing an argument. Um, I think it's all about like dialectic and like the way that these, these conversations are had in the movie in a way where you can't necessarily, I don't know, pin it down as one thing or another. I think in Superstar, it's like, I mean, if you look at the reviews for Superstar on Letterboxd, like there's nobody talking about how this is corny. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, and, and 
I think that that is a central part of it. Like, I think that, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think that like, they cut to the, the like, man on the street interviews with, like, the girl who's like, do anorexics ever get hungry? <laughs> it's like, well, mm-hmm. yes, anorexics occasionally, blah, blah, blah. But then they suppress their hunger. And, and it's like, there's these over-the-top performance things and, un, like, that seem, like, corny on purpose. Um, in a way that's always distancing yeah. you and always keeping you at, like, just look at this thing, like, that's happening. Like, not, like, really yeah, empathize with this, but just, like, look at it. And, like, we'll explore all of the things. Like, we'll explore all of the conversations surrounding anorexia and, like, empathetically. Like, you know what I mean? We'll talk about the the way that this is not Karen Carpenter's fault and this is, like, largely, you know, the way that she's dealing with an environment that's outside of herself and trying to have some sort of control and whatever. Like, we can talk about all of that. But underneath it, there's kind of... I feel like a dude just kind of being like, yeah, but like he's, it's, there's, there's a joke. You know what I mean? There's a certain joke happening. I feel like in superstar, um, that's like, there's a gay dude who's laughing about banal anorexic chicks, you know, when gay people are dying from AIDS. Yeah. Well, of course, I think that's a huge part of it. Um, when he's talking about an epidemic of anorexia happening and whatever and all this stuff, it's like, first of all, yeah. like at this point, th- this this epidemic is a complete media creation in order to like sell news stories, um, and mm. it's happening at a time when like young gay men are dying in epidemic levels. I mean, like like in New York, it's like one in two or something. Like you know what I mean? It's like it's like a crazy yeah, amount yeah. of gay guys who are dying in in at this time. And for this, you know, young gay artist to make a <laughs> a movie about, like, the most banal-ass woman just, like, dying of this, like, really, really serious epidemic. Uh, because do they ever get hungry? Like, you know, like, it's, there, there's a certain tongue-in-cheekness to it that I think is inherently there. And I think that's kind of the only real thing that makes it interesting. Because um, I feel like... There's very little difference between Superstar Karen Carpenter's story and any after-school special, like, other than the fact that it's by Barbie dolls and whatever, like, um, Mm -hmm. except for the fact that it's so ironic. Well, and it does have that sort of weird, schizophrenic, manic kind of energy or whatever. Totally, totally. With, like, Um, like the shots of the X-lax and the weird audio things and, like, the, like, repetitiveness of it and all this stuff and... Kind of the inconsistency of the talking heads and the narration and all this stuff is all creates sort of a cognitive dissonance, you know. I, I feel that, but I think that that is a combination of the surreal, like it, it's a it's it's a surreal feeling that you get from the juxtaposition of this like almost trolling parodic thing and like the actual like deep conversation about the societal you know, things that contribute to this thing. Uh, I think, like, we're kind of, like, watching an empathetic portrayal of somebody who's being killed by things outside of her, you know, means. But we're also seeing a movie Mm -hmm. that's like, look at this fucking idiot. She's taking X-Lex, dude. Like, she's shitting herself to death. Like, that's... It's like... And every time it cuts to the X-Lex or whatever, it's like, there's no... It's it's kind of funny. Like, you know? I mean, it's not. It's horrible. But there's something there that's like 
almost like the most mean-spirited guy laughing behind all of this, you know? Well, I think, like like I said before, this idea that her real sickness is a sickness of environment and the world she's living in, that's not really, like, that is true, but it's also, like, taking away her agency to say that's the case. Like, right. this is this is also something she's very much doing to herself, like... Like I, I've known an, an anorexic person. Yeah. It's, it's like definitely something that happens more often to young girls and people who get really, really insecure about where they are in their lives and what kind of friends they have and what kind of impact they're making and whatever things. It like it all derives from a from a psychological place, and it's part of the reason why, like you know. Like, you'd go to the doctors and be like, well, physically, there's nothing wrong with you. Like, you know, maybe you need to see a psychiatrist or right, whatever. Right. It's like, it's a, it's like a self-imposed sickness right. that then becomes a pattern that you then just runs out of control and that you sort of have to answer to. Like any other pattern or behavioral pattern you create within yourself. Right. And, or addiction, right? Addiction would be the right word. She's addicted right. to making herself thin in the way that someone would be addicted to drugs, and that's a self-imposed thing. And you can say, well, society made me this way, or it was my banal life that made me want to take drugs, but you're still the person who chose to do that and continues to choose to do that and continues to like not make an alternate choice that gets in the way of that and like upsets it. Right. And, you know, because I had... Because I have known people who have been anorexic and seen them recover, it like generally comes from a place of like I need to make things better in my life. Right. It's not like just about like oh I just have to stop taking the Xlax and like eat a little more. It's like no, you actually have to like find meaning and value and purpose in yourself. Right. You know. Right. Like it, it starts in this weird place of just like getting over that, and I don't know. There's something weird about Karen Carpenter being like someone who's receiving a, a ton of like external validation for being this singer and doing this work, but like how her life doesn't actually reflect any of that, you know, right. and how she's just like actually a nothing who like has almost nobody and like is just trapped and there really isn't like, yeah, she has nothing to say. There is no life experience to really draw from. It, it probably just ends up exacerbating everything that feels fake and banal about her life to have all that attention and have all this validation for being so banal and like just this perfect cookie cutter idea of the American dream or whatever. Right. Right. And wholesome American values. But I guess this idea of like a sort of like self-imposed or invented addiction or sickness does tie very neatly into a safe, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. But I, but I would like to say real quick first that like I'm I like I totally buy into the existence of and legitimacy of eating disorders and whatnot. Like I like as far uh, as oh yeah people yeah. people you know <laughs> that have like terrible diet shit. Like I'm the worst. <laughs> like you know what I mean? I can't eat tons of shit. No like, sure. Like, like, I wasn't naming. It's... I wasn't naming names. <laughs> <laughs> but like I I do like I don't know like like looking up like just on the internet like i i got problems with eating food and things or whatever like if you go to reddit you can find like a whole community of people that would be like oh yeah we all have this same disease it's called arfid and like it's it's something about restrict 
automatic restrictive food intake disorder or something like you know what i mean and there's mm-hmm. tons of people who are on there just like being like oh i also really love eating goldfish all the time and i can't eat anything you know what i mean or like or my kid won't yeah, eat anything yeah. except this or that or whatever and like how do we deal with this arfid or whatever and it's like i as far as the symptoms that like those people have like i got those fucking symptoms completely um yeah, yeah. I think that shit's totally legitimate, but also like I think it's completely illegitimate. <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like I do not actually have like a disease that is orphit. Mostly I'm just like being immature and like not fucking dealing with my shit. <laughs> like you know what I mean? It's like there like and I think that the existence out there of like a forum of people who are like, "No, no, you're just like us and this is how you should like and people should, you know, make space for you to eat this way and you know, change the menu and blah 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 and whatever." It's like, "Nah, dude, maybe like like as somebody who is that person, I think we suck." Like, you know what I mean? It's like that like and yeah. I think that the legitimizing of my own symptoms like is not good for me. You know what I mean? As much as just like somebody being like, nah, dude, you don't have that. It's not real. Like <laughs> that I think is better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this somewhat connects to our last conversation about intersubjective reality and stuff is that if you have enough people and like the point that you made about like the hack psychiatry and stuff like that, the idea of like, we're going to like basically invent and label a condition for you that is your incurable disease. Right. 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 That validates your behavior. Exactly. Instead of like finding a way to actually change your behavior and start eating a vegetable every now and then. Right. You know? Right. Like you have like maybe at one point it would have been a little bit easier for you to just start eating different things, but you've gone on this way for so long that now you've developed a pattern of behavior. That's just very hard to change. And like, I think like even if you eat something like that, it makes you sick, you know, like you don't, your body's just like not used to it. So it like is real, but it's still, it's, it's both. And, you know, like there's a physical thing that's happening and it has to do with your, um, you know, it's just what you're used to. You, like everything in life is habituation. You know what I mean? And you yeah, like everything in life exactly. is habit forming. And so like everything in life is addictive and you can get just as addicted mm-hmm. to like any sort of behavior as anything else. I mean, I think that what's interesting when you're talking about, when you're talking about like anorexia, like that is addictive, you know what I mean? And it seems like it shouldn't yeah, be, yeah. but it is similarly. Like if we're thinking about like when we were in, you know, middle school, or whatever, like anorexia was still kind of a thing, or whatever, but the bigger thing that was happening at that point was cutting, you yeah, know, like, like yeah. you know, emo kids cutting themselves and whatever, and just like having the pain and the whatever, like, and that's something that I think like doesn't make any sense to be addictive. You know what I mean? But it is like the, people get addicted mm-hmm. to that yeah, thing. Yeah. And it's just like anything can be habit forming and anything, you know, but I I think, you know, connected to the anorexia thing, I think it's interesting to think about the cutting thing and how that was sort of romanticized in the culture by like emo, you know, bands, I guess, (laughs) or whatever, like characters who it's like, yeah, we're so deep. We're so interesting. That's why we cut ourselves is because we're so much more deep than the rest of you. Pain is the only thing that's real. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And it's like, that is that is the same kind of thing as the anorexia thing um, where it's kind of a social contagion thing where essentially like cutting is something that wouldn't have like occurred to any of us. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like any teenagers in middle school or whatever, we're not going to think about cutting themselves for fun. Like that's not a thing, but 
when you're taught about these kids that are so sad that they cut themselves and whatever, and that's like the thing, and that those kids deserve special treatment, and you did what it's like. Then you get a group of friends that are all together and they're like, oh, well, I cut myself too. And I would kill myself if you ever killed yourself. And we're so emo. We're so much better. And it's like, that's a weird sure. sort of. Well, yeah, isn't I think part of all... that also like the gaining power through victimhood thing as well. Exactly. You know, like when you exactly. have no control and yeah, like you can self-destruct and become a victim because now you have a disease. and Right. And everybody this. else has to cater to your disease. Um, yeah. But yeah, but I think it's I think it's interesting that it, that these are diseases these are diseases that were like created and advertised and then popularized um, in the culture. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. That like you you'd see like in you know 1991 what percentage of teenage girls cut themselves versus like in 2001 what percentage of teenage girls cut themselves? <laughs> like you know what I mean? It's like I don't think that there was a huge increase of masochism in <laughs> in the youth like you know i think it was like no this is something that came up in the culture and then got popularized because of the culture um i don't think there's anything like that today but you don't think so <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah yeah you uh you think we're you think we've we've finished up on uh superstar we've talked almost as long as the movie itself they're all they're all the same conversation basically. So yeah, like you can kind of like like all this stuff about Superstar applies to Safe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess this is part of the reason you wanted to like pair these three movies, right? Is yes. This, is like I we had never talked about these movies, and this is my first time watching all of them. And I guess you know part of what we do here is we pair things in an interesting way where like the themes kind of like highlight things in each movie so i'm i'm watching these movies trying to like pin down what the connection is or what the theme is or what the todd haynes interest is that like threads them all together and they're they're definitely you know safe you have another sort of like it's another suburban nightmare right with a with a trapped woman who is really banal and living this kind of banal existence who starts to become sick and her sickness is something that doctors can't explain and seems psychosomatic or something right and uh she's a housewife she doesn't have like a career like Karen Carpenter she's not like getting validation or kind of attention in the same sort of way, but it is still dealing with this thing that we were just talking about of a kind of like self-imposed sickness or self-imposed victimization that is a symptom to a larger um, problem, which is your environment and your banality and like your like lack of being an actual human person, having a human experience. No, totally, um, totally. Um, well, I, I guess, I guess to start, like, did you enjoyed, you enjoyed, uh, safe? Oh yeah. Yeah. I liked safe a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, more so than, I, I really than Superstar. The, yeah. I mean, Superstar is like, Superstar does just feel like a gimmicky kind of student film, you know? Where yeah. It's, like, it, it's certainly an idea. It totally know, feels to me like a kid in your class that made this movie like you know what i mean where it's like oh yeah i know i know yeah, yeah, yeah. he sits up there in the front row he made a movie about uh you know karen carpenter with barbie dolls like you know yeah, what I mean? yeah, exactly uh 
Oh, yeah. It's like right. that was the idea. He's like, oh, like the idea kind of boils down to that gimmick. And, like, it ends up saying things. And, you know, it's saying a lot of these things that we're, we're talking about or that apply to Safe. But Safe is just way more of a movie that just has this conversation in a much more interesting, nuanced way. And there's a lot more a lot more details and a lot more things that kind of help highlight the conversation totally. um, in a way that is just more interesting than the one-noteness of Superstar. Totally. But totally. I, I love the way Safe is shot. I'm just, like, really, really into the aesthetics yeah, yeah, yeah. of this movie. Um, like, I love the music and... Like the, the the camera work, I love all the really wide removed shots. Like he still has kind of like a way of removing you completely from it's a, it's a lot motion. of the framing is just like the, it's framed for the room, and she happens to mm-hmm. be in the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, especially in yeah, the beginning, it almost makes her look like a Barbie doll. Like yeah, she yeah, is yeah. a doll in this environment or this little totally, you know, totally. Um, and I, like. Yeah, I, I think I think in the beginning, like you see her framed in like these these shots of these like giant beautiful rooms, and she's just like another piece of furniture in the room. You know what I mean? And exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw it, I was kind of thinking, okay, so like this is about this, you know, woman who's being oppressed in this suburban environment, and so we see like that this environment is keeping her down, and you know, hopefully we'll be able to see how she overcomes this. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yeah. and expresses her, her true self or something. Um, what's interesting is I, the first time I, I came across this movie, I, the reason I wanted to see it was because I was a big fan of um, Antonioni's Red Desert. And in some, like, mm-hmm. letter, like not that much is written about Red Desert. So, like, one of the few reviews I read, I don't know if it was a letterboxed review or what, but it was some review where somebody was talking about how it was, how, like, Safe was a remake of Red Desert. Um, so I kind of mm-hmm. went into safe with that in mind, um, thinking like Red Desert is kind of about Monica Vitti, who's like living in this modern world and the modern world is so, you know, removed from humanity and poetry and everything. And it's so focused on, you know, digits and technology and factories and all, all that sort of stuff that she kind of doesn't have a place for herself. The, the environment is sort of oppressing her so much that it's sort of driving her, you know, kind of crazy. You know what I mean? Because she's like yeah. too good of a person for that sort of environment, you know? Um, for sure. And I think that I went into safe thinking that that was somehow connected to this. And I think that's totally the wrong way of looking at this movie. Um, where I, I don't mm-hmm. think, like, I think that the problem isn't that there's so much more to Carol than this environment is allowing for. Um, I think that the problem is kind of the opposite. <laughs> like that there's nothing more to Carol, mm-hmm. you know? That, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and like, I mean, I think that part of what's interesting is where does her disease start? When you, when you watch this movie, uh, like this, this is your first time through. So I'm not. You know, but if you think about it, like, where do you think this all kind of starts for Carol? Or did it start before the movie started? Like, what's? Yeah, that's what I don't really know. I mean, she she points to the fruit diet, right? She like does one thing that like kind of upsets her routine and like throws her out of her rhythm, right? But I mean, that wasn't even. I I, I think she only points to the fruit diet after the doctor points to the fruit diet. Well, the doctor says you need to be eating protein and stuff, and she's like, you know, it's like, why did you, 
Yeah. And then later when she's talking to the psychiatrist, she brings up, well, I think this might have started with the fruit diet, but but that's what the doctor told her it might have started with and that she needs to eat more protein and that sort of thing. I, mm-hmm. I think that what's interesting is for me when I watch this movie, I think we see her at the uh, jazzercise thing or whatever it is. Um, the aerobics mm-hmm. class, and she's in the locker room afterwards, and that's where her, she, her like friends, or not even her friends, but just the other girls in the class, are talking about basically feminism, <laughs> like, or or yeah, they're kind yeah, of talking yeah. about how corporations control your mind and whatever, and like that that sort of thing. And I think that that's the first sort of thing for Carol is like her starting to think outside the box here. Um, where she's mm-hmm. no longer just sort of satisfied to accept things as they are. Instead, she starts to question things through this sort of feminist lens. And I think that what's interesting is instead of that empowering her, we kind of see how that destroys her in this movie. Yeah, but they are talking about dieting. And then she says, like, I think dieting is just another form of addiction. Right. Um I guess her friend is talking about reading this author who has opened her eyes to... right something but like that something is not actually about like having individual power it's about like acknowledging your powerlessness she's like we're not really in control of our emotions and stuff right right um but this is this is what i'm saying with with when you were saying the the fruit diet um was a factor i think that she doesn't mm -hmm. attribute anything to a fruit diet until the male doctor tells her that this was from a fruit diet and then she goes to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist asks her where this might have started, and she says the fruit diet, because that was where an authority figure told her it might have come from. And every and I think that she starts repeating what her friend said in the locker room, and that starts to like, you know, infiltrate her mind and, and sort of make her start questioning these things. Then she finds these these other authority figures to kind of tell her who she is or what's going on or whatever. And then, you know, eventually yeah, she finds this, like, are you having headaches? Are you like having, like, do you have trouble? Like any mm-hmm. sort of vague symptoms? Like, here's the answer. And then she starts repeating what those people told her. But I think. Sure. Of- but it's not, it's not like the doctor tells her the fruit diet started it. That's just a conclusion she's coming to. Right. Right. But she's like mimicking. Doctor never, doctor doesn't say like, you're not sick. You're sick because like the do- all the doctor says is nothing's wrong with you. But you should eat protein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I think she sees it as like I have this disease thing, and then she's just trying to pick up like, well, what is it? What is it? Well, he said maybe it's the fruit thing, or they say maybe it's the environment thing, or maybe it's the corporations, or maybe it's the, maybe it's, it's the chemicals. Chemicals. You know? Maybe it's just the chem- maybe it's just the individual thing. Or, sorry, the invisible things all around us that are you know the spirits that are attacking me, mm-hmm. which is essentially schizophrenia. Sure, yeah. I mean, like the the. Yeah, there's the classic schizophrenic thing of bugs crawling all over you, bugs in your skin, or bugs, like, and that's the exact same thing that Carol's going through, except that her bugs are invisible. It's, you know, bugs in the air, mm-hmm. or the 4G, or whatever it is. Um, that Sure, yeah, I'm allergic to Wi-Fi. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, she discovers people that validate that, and then she can then go out and use that identity that they give her. I think at the beginning of the movie, she's going around just sort of trying to adopt these other things until she finds a place. And that's, that's what's interesting to me about the psychiatrist scene, where the psychiatrist asks her, like, you know, when this started, what's going on or whatever. And then she tells him basically what just happened in the doctor scene, where it's like, oh, well, he said it's probably nothing and that, like, maybe I should see you and that, like, maybe it had to do with the fruit diet or whatever. And then he, like, 
doesn't ask her anything else. And she's just like, are you, aren't you supposed to ask more questions? He's like, no, I'm supposed to like, this is more about what's going on inside of you. And then she completely shuts down. Like, because there's nothing that she has to say. That's not just like mimicking something that has been told to her to say. Like when it, when it comes to like her talking to the psychiatrist about what's going on with her, she has nothing to kind of say, except for the thing that the other doctor said. And then the things that her friends have said recently and like that, like, you know mm. what I mean? That there's nothing going on inside of her mind except for these this aggression external won't things. stand, man. This aggression. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. She's just like a stoner wandering around repeating the things that he heard that day. Um, she, um, she says at the beginning, like, I, you know, I'm like a housewife. She says to the psychiatrist, like, I'm a housewife. I'm a homemaker. Yeah, like, no, she starts she, to say I'm a housewife she, and then she stops. And then she says, I'm a homemaker mm-hmm. because she doesn't, she, I, yeah, yeah, she yeah. defined herself as a housewife, but that's not feminist. And now this new thing is telling her, no, no, you're a homemaker. That's a more like, this is all yeah, part of this whole job. new ideology, this sort of like self-help ideology that is coming around in like the eighties and whatever that's being explored in this movie. Um, in the and 90s, that's like the but, one thing she has to focus on is the fact that they got the wrong couch. Right. And she, like, needs to go, like, pick up the dry cleaning and go, like, complain about how she didn't order these black couches. And we're like, well, that's what you ordered. And she's like, it doesn't make any sense because it doesn't fit with anything we have. Right. I couldn't help but thinking about the uh, Lester in American Beauty. It's just a couch! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Totally. Um, like, this totally, like, banal, empty, like, you know, suburban American concern of, like, does your ha- the couch match the drapes? Exactly. Like, exactly. And that movie, too, matter. is just, like, it's a like, husband who's just trying to fuck his wife. <laughs> and she's just, yeah. like, so concerned <laughs> with, like, her couch shit that, like, she won't do it. And he's like, really? Yeah, he's like, he's like, no, he's like, nobody has a fucking headache every day of the week. Right. You know, like, he's like, I know what's going on here, but you won't talk about it and shit. But she says, like, I know it's not normal, but I can't help it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's the thing is, like, she absolutely can help it just as much as, you know, Karen Carpenter can help it, you know? But instead, she's buying into this, like, well, it's just, it's out of my hands. I can't do anything about it, you know? I think that that's a really good excuse for not having sex with your husband. <laughs> like, if you really don't want to, but mm-hmm. you can't allow yourself to know that you don't want to, then... You make yourself sick, and then you can't, and it's not your fault. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. much more. It's like, well, I'm sorry, it's out of my hands. I'm so sick. It's such a thing, and it's like, throughout the movie, she uses that more and more. Um, where it just like every time she finds some sort of thing, it just like allows her to do less. You know what I mean? And just like clock out more. You know, just like completely well, leave society. Up, where, where does she end up in the end of the movie? You know, yeah, like, yeah, completely sealed inside a bubble, right? That, like, you know, and then she walks up to the mirror and says, I love you. Like, it's such an ironic, you found that ironic, of like, yeah, yeah. Well, that's good because I'll tell you, when I watched this movie and fucking, I, I was in a um, community college and like a film course, so it was like all online because it was during COVID, but. Mm-hmm. I read all of the other students' responses, and nobody in the class, except for me, found that ironic. Like all of really? these, all of these Zoomers watched Safe, <laughs> dude, and they watched a movie about a woman 
who was sick because of the environment, who finally found a place where she was accepted and could love herself. <laughs> like, it's like that was I was like I couldn't believe it, dude. I like couldn't believe it. And like what my, the fuck? like I was like and I tried to like respond to these like but like it was a bunch of modern Gen Z kids who ascribe to this ideology. And that this is this is yeah, that's the thing is this is scary. this is the sea in which we live. They didn't see the irony of this film. They saw this as the thing that they always see, which is empowerment through victimization. Um, and like yeah. they they did not see the irony. It's like, dude, well, what about the scabs on her face in the last scene? At least, like, do you not see that she like physically looks worse or anything? She obviously feels worse. She's obviously given up everything. It's like, no, no, no. These are people who are happy to see people saying they love themselves, even when they've mutilated themselves to like oblivion and are like dying alone <laughs> in the woods, like. It's like, well, finally they and found like, a place like, to be happy as, like, whatever. They, like, wanted to, you know, I don't know. Like, you and know they've, like, I mean? destroyed their, they've, like, destroyed their family and, like, yeah. like their friend network and just, like, Completely. everything that they did have in their lives. Even if it was all banal and empty and meaningless, it's, like. But now what do you have left, dude? You have, you, I love myself. I really hated myself before I came here. But now I learned to love myself. Who said that? Mm-hmm. She says that, but you know who said that first? The fucking woman two scenes earlier. Every single thing she says well, yeah, in this yeah, movie yeah, yeah, is something yeah. that somebody else said earlier. And then she's like, oh, I didn't realize that's what I am. Like, I, like yeah, it yeah. starts she's in the not, locker she's room. She's not thinking for herself. It happens with the doctors. It happens with every like authority figure. And then when she gets to the, the, the cult, it, she like literally, like her speech, when, when it's her birthday, she has to have that birthday speech. It's like the cringiest shit in the world. I love it. It's amazing. Oh she's my like, god! Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually the climax of the movie. Yeah. that's like the pretty much the last scene before the at the the final resolution scene where her husband and her stepson like see her away into her little dome. Right, and uh, they're like, "Okay, bye, honey." He's just like continuously like putting up with it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, okay, go into your dome. I hope you feel better. But, like, the scene before that is where she gives a speech, and you see this woman has nothing going on inside of her. She nothing. can't form a single coherent statement about anything. Except you see her for grasping a few banal, like, things that other people have said, and she's, like, latched onto. <laughs> like, and she's yeah, repeating. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's just like, uh, environmentalism I mean, and, like, all of the people and AIDS and, like, <laughs> it's just like, what are you yeah, even yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's what's so amazing is, like, those fucking Gen Z kids didn't see any irony there because that's what they do all day. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? They're <laughs> like, oh, she's making a great speech. She's now accepted because, like, she's saying the things that the people around her are saying and she's found a place where she, like, you know what I mean? It's like, no, dude, she's been destroyed. She is not even a person. Even if she couldn't say anything, they still cheer for her and yeah. she's accepted. Like, how nice. Exactly. Exactly. Because it's like, okay, okay. It's also all just like a complete scam, right? That's that's the other thing is that it's all just like they're they are they are people who are victimizing themselves and people who are victimizing themselves can be exploited, you know? Totally. But, but I think I think that the way that this this like develops as the movie gets on is interesting too. Um as far as the self victimization thing is concerned. 
because um, mm-hmm. I think like at first when when they go to the cult, it's or outside the cult when she's finding about, out about the cult in the first place. She's talking to people like in the in the group outside before she actually goes to the place. They're talking about like how these environmental factors did this to them and all this stuff, whatever. But then eventually, when they're at the cult, there's a woman who's talking about I did this to myself. I made myself sick. And I made myself sick because of how I felt yeah, about yeah, yeah. my son and like my husband, whatever, like because my son got sick and then I couldn't get him better. I made myself sick and now I'm like this or whatever. And like she actually kind of understands what's happening, <laughs> but doesn't anymore. It's kind of like how No, but that's also one of the last in, scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But this is the thing of like in ancient religions there were like the um the the illuminated manuscript what what is it there there's the like esoteric stuff that was the hidden sort of cult stuff of these religions right like in in ancient christianity like the idea that christ was born of a virgin was something that like wasn't like open knowledge until you got to i forget what the fuck it's called it's the i don't know there's a there's a thing in in like ancient religions and stuff where there were the things for the enlightened people um, and then the things for, like, everybody else. You know what I mean? And it was once you became a part of the thing, then they could tell you the actual, like, spiritual, like, hidden parts of that religion. Um, like, in Judaism, mm-hmm. it's like, the Talmud and stuff like that. But, like, in Christianity, it was just, like, basic tenets of Christianity, like, that Jesus rose again and those sorts of things. It's like, you wouldn't tell those to just people on the street because they're like, no, that's not possible. That's crazy. Like, and then they just dismiss you. Like, you know what I mean? You can't go up and be like, yo, so there was this guy who died and then he came back to life. They'll be like, no, he didn't. You're fucking crazy. But if you introduce them to your ideas and then they come to a mass and then they do a thing and then you tell them, well, it turns out this dude actually like died and then he came back to life again. Then they're like, oh shit. Okay. And then they're initiated. And it's like for the initiated people to get into that higher, like, I don't know. And I feel like there's part of that to this cult where like it's each sort of level is just like a slightly deeper level of this sort of initiation but it's like you're further in so you can't step out like the uh it's like the concept of sunk cost yeah it's like this is stuff that would sound crazy to you at first like if carol well i mean maybe not carol but like if somebody outside of this cult were to hear like you're making yourself sick then they'd be like oh okay then i don't need a cult like you know what i mean but instead, it's like, no, once you get to the cult, after finding out that the environment was a thing that made you sick, then you can discover, no, no, it wasn't even the, really the environment. It's actually you that's making you sick. But now you're so initiated into this thing that, like, that what you are is something that has changed, you know? Yeah. I don't know that I'm explaining this mm-hmm. very well. <laughs> but Maybe not, but I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think um, one of the things I want to say about the cult that I think really highlights the nuance of this movie and why this is, like, a really interesting conversation is because, like, maybe I have been, like, drinking the wrong Kool-Aid or whatever, but I identify with the stuff that the cult's teaching. Like, I, th- I, I think, like, in a lot of ways, the cult is actually teaching things that's true because, like you said, it's, like, the idea that it's not your environment that's making you sick. It actually is you. And like, and it's not just the last scene where he says that. That's really where he like, that's really the climax where it's like he asks people directly, so what made you sick? Why are you sick? Mm-hmm. You know, and them having to explain, well, I think it started when this happened or this happened. And, 
like the one woman even admits like you know she's like I had a trauma when I was a child and and he's like well who's really the person who hurt you the most and she says me for not forgiving him mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then like there's you know the other woman is like I just wanted to hurt everybody who made me this way and it's like nobody made you this way you did this to yourself even even before this scene though he had there's this whole scene where he's like you know I stopped watching the news I was tired of their fatalistic doom profiteering bullshit you know why because like if if I really believe the world is that terrible that destructive then my immune system will too like it really is this like this teaching of mind over matter and stuff but I think you're right is that they're that's not what their ads are saying that's right. not what they're that's not the way they're fronting before people come because nobody wants to hear that you're doing this to yourself or no one's going to come right 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 and so like it's a both and thing where i think like the stuff he's teaching actually is true and like does make sense that there is like a mind body connection where like the things you believe like are manifested which sort of does connect to our last conversation as well right but right. the yeah the idea that like the more you kind of lean into this idea that like the world is this toxic environment that makes you sick, that's just how you're going to get sick. You know, that like, that's just gonna, your immune system is going to respond to that. But at the same time, it also is like this scam cult where like, he even makes a joke. Like the first time he comes up to the podium he says, pass all your valuables up to the front. No, no, just kidding. Right. You know? And then there's like, and then there's this thing where her husband's visiting. He's like, whose house is that? She's like, oh, it's Peter's. Isn't it beautiful? It's like, yo, Peter's fucking rich. Like, he has gotten so rich off of this cult mm-hmm. and this scam, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think, like, the teachings of the cult, so, like, do ring true in a lot of ways. Right. That, like, in the end, it's like, we're not actually, we're not actually here to tell you that like you have no responsibility and that the environment's just done this to you. We're actually here to tell you it's all you. And right. it's like all your responsibility and you're the one who made yourself sick and like yeah, it, it's it's a really bizarre like both and sort of double-edged thing. Um No, totally. I, and <clears> the thing is I think that that's one of the things that Todd Haynes does really well. Like we were talking about in Superstar where it can be really critical of and, you know, even sort of disrespectful of um the people it's talking about but it can also be really empathetic with them at the same time like i think that this is a movie that does actually i mean it has a lot to say on kind of both sides of things i think that there are a lot of things about the problems of carol's life that apply to all of us you know and that like her Mm -hmm. disease is something that we all have um in in some in some way and i think that she's kind of you know, a canary in the coal mine for where the culture was going to go. Um, sure. This yeah. was so long ago and, you know, things have gotten so much more, you know, developed in this self-victimization totally. yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. Uh, uh, paradigm. Um, but like you were but, saying about your eating stuff, man, that the fact that it's not like it is a both end thing where it's like, yeah, I mean, there are people, it's like bullshit, but it becomes real. So it's like... I don't know. I also like really personally related to all this um, because I have also been dealing with like a sort of like a sickness that like comes and goes for a while now. Mm -hmm. And it's like it's lung based. There might I might have an acute kind of asthma 
and whatever, you know, and like asthma's brought up in this movie. She had asthma as a child, but like she got over it or whatever. Right. And like asthma is also what Elizabeth has in May, December, but I'm jumping ahead. But yeah, I've always had this like, I've for just like what Carol says when she's writing the note and there's that really like weird corny voiceover where she's like, I always saw myself as a healthy person, but then all of a sudden I got sick. And it's like, it was really speaking to me because I also always kind of felt like I was a healthy person. And then all of a sudden I was having more and more breathing problems and I needed to start using an inhaler. And every time I went to the doctors, I just like couldn't get a straight answer or any kind of like, you know, I took a bunch of pulmonary and respiratory tests and they'd be like, oh, your lungs are really strong. And they'd be like, well, this is a little odd, but I don't really know what that means. You know, it's just like, I'm not getting any answers from you guys. Right, right, right. You know, it's like, well, maybe you should go see an allergist and maybe you should go see blah, blah, blah. And like everything I know about my condition is just like anecdotal. It's like, well, I'm just going to diagnose myself then. I've been living with cats for five years and I'd never lived with cats before and I know I'm allergic to cats so that's the reason why my respiratory health has been declining right and then when I moved out of that place and I wasn't living with cats anymore and I moved to New Mexico which is also funny because she goes to New Mexico which is where the cult is located Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I went to New Mexico and then I felt healthy again I could breathe like I didn't need to use my medication my inhaler and now I'm like I was like home free and I'm a daily smoker you know I smoke I smoke weed and whatever and that wasn't the thing that was triggering me I wasn't getting asphyxiated when I smoked weed but then all of a sudden I'm living with this dog now I got a dog with my partner and we're living in this house together and it's all coming back I'm just like getting sick again and I've just felt sick for months on end And I, like, have another doctor's appointment coming up, and I'm not convinced I'm going to learn anything. And, like, I don't know what the fuck to do. And, like, yeah, they'll probably just put me on a medication. But, like, all this stuff just to say is, like, I don't know that this is just a psychosomatic thing, you know? Like, there seems to be something about my environment that's making me sick, certain environments or certain, like, allergens or whatever it is, or being hypersensitive to certain allergens because of growing up in this chemical environment or whatever. So it's like, to me, even though all of that in this movie is ironic, and I think in Carol's case, we're talking about like a psychosomatic imposed sickness, that like there also is truth to it as well. There's like a both andness to that, just like we were saying about the anorexia, about how it is real and it does afflict people, but like is also a self-imposed thing or something that becomes compounded because of the way you psychologically handle it, you know? Totally. That like, maybe I am getting more sick because like I get more uncomfortable and then I just see myself as a sick person who has this disease that like can't be cured and it's always going to be with me. So now it's just like, that's my baseline. I think the question, the question is like, you can either go about this and say like, okay, well sometimes I feel sick. And some people sometimes feel sick and like that is the baseline and whatever. Or you can start trying to like eliminate things from your life to like fix that variable and just be like, well, I still feel sick. Well, like, let's get rid of the husband. Like, let's get rid of the everything. Like, let's get rid of the job. 
let's just go into like you know yeah, and then yeah. at a certain point it's like dude maybe you'd just be better off if you like sneezed every once in a while like you know what i mean um then like all of these things that you have to eliminate in order to make yourself not feel the sickness that is now so overpowering or whatever it's like eh, if you just kind of ignored it wouldn't it kind of be better <laughs> than like having to change your entire reality just to deal with this thing um well, there, there's, a, there's a psychological way to overcome it, even if you are actually sensitive and physically allergic to things, you know? Right. Like, sure, I could start going crazy and removing everything. I could get rid of this dog, for instance, be like, that he's the problem, so let's get rid of him. Right, but then if, know, the dog, then if the dog if the doesn't then, fix it, then you need to move out and uh, get away from the wife and then stop having that, any food. Mm-hmm. What if you? Yeah, what yeah, if yeah. it's corn? What if it's anything? No, you need to go down and eat just but rice I, but I, for I months. I am going and... through that where it's like maybe <laughs> we should rip up all these carpets because it's really bad to have carpets when you have bad allergies. And right, like, right. Yada, yada, yada. Maybe I need to start exercising 30 minutes a day to like, because that could help. And like, maybe all these things are true. I mean, some of those things, the thing is like, some of those things just seem positive, but some of them clearly wouldn't be. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like if you said, I need to move to a colony of other people like me, that would, that would seem probably less positive, (laughs) you know, than being like, I need to exercise for a half hour a day. I don't know. I just, I don't think that Carol Mm -hmm. in this movie is going about like things where she's like, oh, well, maybe I could just exercise a little bit and do it. Like, she's more about noticing the things. And once she starts noticing the things, she starts noticing things that, like, never caused a problem before uh, and stuff, you know? Sure. I mean, and also, like, yeah. she's she's very allergic but, to milk, too, apparently, from that, like, one hack doctor who's, like, doing surgery in his, like, kitchen. Um, her, like, is that allergist. what he decides she's allergic to, is milk? Is yeah. That, like... Didn't catch that. That's what she's having a reaction to? She's having a reaction to milk, yeah, which is the thing that she's drinking all the time at, in the beginning of the movie. Um, yeah, yeah, Having yeah. no reaction. Well, she's drinking milk, yeah, but she doesn't have an allergic reaction to that milk. But she Maybe had, she has a delayed allergic reaction to the milk? There's I don't no, know. I mean, <laughs> she apparently has an allergic reaction to the milk in the allergist's office, but her allergic reaction is a panic attack, and it's brought on by like when the people stop paying attention to her. So, you know, it's not really an allergic reaction. Um, it's a psychological. Yeah, but f- I think I think like the scene where she has the first like panic attack happens after she drinks the milk. Like that's the that's the next scene. Mm-hmm. She's like sitting there drinking the milk or whatever, and then the next scene she's driving behind those trucks and she thinks it's like the the exhaust or whatever. Right. But it could be a delayed reaction to the milk. Like people are allergic to milk, man. You know, like I was allergic to dairy my whole childhood and no, yeah, I yeah, like yeah. But, grew out of it. But that's not, whatever, that's not, but. she's not having an allergic reaction though. Like an allergic reaction is not when you no, yeah. start like breathing really hard and have a panic attack. Like that's, no, you're, no, you're, you're right. She, she's having a panic attack. I mean, it's not, she's not being asphyxiated. It's not like her throat is swelling up or anything like she's, and her, her panic attack in that case is brought on by like a truck two trucks in front of her when a truck moves out of the way and she notices the smoke coming out of the truck, two trucks in front of her. Like, you know what I mean? Like she's, well, she's also she's surrounded 50, she's, by garbage trucks. It looks like the scene from Tenet or whatever. Yeah. 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 It's true. <laughs> she's like, it's, she's it's like trapped shot. by garbage trucks. Yeah. Like but then how the does she get away from it? She goes to a fucking underground garage. Like that's like, dude, that's yeah, the worst, yeah, yeah. That's the worst possible to, place. And then mm-hmm. she feels better. Like, cause she's parked, six floors down in an underground garage and it's like dude no this is 
completely obviously psychosomatic. Like there's no connection between like her coughing and like the truck, two trucks in front of her because it's when the truck pulls out of the way and she sees the smoke that already would have been there for like the last several miles that she then starts immediately coughing and having to pull over. It's all, oh God, those chemicals that I'm thinking of are there. And I think you could describe most of her symptoms in this movie as like being psychosomatic, but she does get a nosebleed after getting her perm. Yeah, that's true. Um, and but, like she does, th- like you know, she starts she having like physical reactions. But like she gets nosebleed, she she throws up when her husband hugs her or whatever. You yeah. know, like but like sure, these things could theoretically be induced in other ways or just because of stress or because of whatever. But how about There's, her like, mouth bleeding? Why when she when she goes to the bleeding. hospital? Yeah, yeah. Her husband yeah. asks her, "Yeah, but why would your mouth actually bleed though?" And she says, "I don't know." It's like, well, she bit Maybe her she mouth. she bit her tongue. Like, yeah. it didn't have anything to do with her, like, allergic reaction. She bit herself in order to, like, induce a blood thing that then looked like she was having it. Like, I don't know. Her husband specifically asks her, like, what is it that would actually make you bleed? And she says, I don't know, or whatever. It's like, well, <laughs> dude, like, only you. That's only you could do that. <laughs> like, it's just like, I don't know. And the reason that she passes out in the first place is because she hasn't eaten in, like, days. Because um, she's doing the fasting thing or something, like, with her friend, which is connected, I guess, to to Karen Carpenter. But it's sure. also, like, when she's drinking the milk, there's actually, like, there's environmental information. Like, when she's drinking the milk on the radio, you can hear that they're having a discussion of euthanasia mm-hmm. and, like, whether or not it's okay to, like, yep. you know, hasten someone's death. And they mention... Uh, a girl who like hastened her death by starving herself. Right, right. There's also in the next scene when she's choking on the fumes in the car on the car radio. They're having a discussion of Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. and whether or not he's like a fundamentalist Christian and like this kind of fundamentalist Christian saying like I think he's like doing the Lord's work and whatever. I'm not sure how it connects, but I feel like it connects to the culty vibes or something or like the whole belief. Uh, right. belief in this thing that the en- that the end is nigh and that like you know to lean into it or whatever yeah but, uh, yeah I think it connects maybe with Karen Carpenter too and that sort of banal Reaganite like you know 70s yeah, yeah. paradigm and stuff 80s sorry yeah, 80s, 80s paradigm 87 well this movie takes place in 87 even though it was released in 95 so it's right. It also is 87 so it's like the same year that what Karen Carpenter yeah it's the same year that Superstar came out it's during the Reagan era. It's when tons of people were dying from AIDS. So it's like um, Peter is also described as having AIDS. Right. I think that's I think that's super important. I think that this is like part of what the yeah. whole movie's about, um, mm-hmm. but just under the surface. Yeah, exactly. And so like we don't consider AIDS to be a psychosomatic. It's a very real disease that destroys your immune system and whatever. But it's like really interesting that. Todd Haynes, as a gay man, um, who was probably very close, like many other gay men in the 80s, to this issue, that he would make a movie about white woman having, like, a psychosomatic, like, disease that gives her power victimization. But then she's kind of, like, exploited by a guy who has AIDS. Well, <laughs> like, kind of. Who I, maybe I think, has AIDS or maybe doesn't. I don't know. Yeah, but I, I, think, I think that what's interesting is that she idolizes a guy with AIDS. 
that I think is the thing that's so sure. interesting is she that does. like what she yeah, really yeah, yeah. wants, mm-hmm. what they all really want is to be like him. The real guy who's actually sick and like actually but, uh, but charismatic. Also, like, but like, is he sick? Is he sick? Does he really have AIDS? You know, like and like in the other woman, Claire. No, exactly, dude. Is it true that she couldn't walk when she first arrived? You know what I mean? It's like exactly. And does he have AIDS? And or like or or is he just so aware that they value AIDS so much that he fakes having AIDS in order to be the leader of this cult of victimhood and sickness and disease? I mean, this is. Mm-hmm. That, that's what like who is the god of their disease cult he's got AIDS like that's the greatest one that's oh my god real like, you know <laughs> it's like respect respect that's that's what they respect, all want yeah um and I think that's really a, dark a completely compromised immune system yeah 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 um do you think it's ironic like another piece of environmental information is the thing about deep ecology you remember that part about what it's on our tv like about deep ecology it's like the little thing on the TV that's suggesting like this idea of deep ecology where we allow for a spiritual explanation to ecological things. Right, right, right. Yeah, the most banal bullshit like self-helpy thing. Yeah. Where it's like it's Yeah, yeah. It's like uh this is this is physics. It's so much physics that you never need to know math again. Like this is ecology, but it's so much ecology that you don't need to know anything about ecology. It's all about the psychological it self-help. Like, it's like acknowledging the oneness of all things. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like a twelve-year-old could be the greatest, you know, in that field because <laughs> there's no well, research guess, sure. to be done. There's no anything. Like it's just, you know, oh, the oneness of everything. It's these. Sure, but it's a bit of a contradiction to be like. Um, I mean, it contradicts like the stuff we were talking about in our last pod, where it's like allowing place for the spirituality you know it's like if you're just going to go ham on scientific ideology that's no better either you know so like right, allowing right, right. space for a spir- spiritual explanations and things is like but there is the danger to that because i feel like that's kind of what is going on here is that there's no real scientific explanation to what's going on so she's left to just kind of like piece together this weird and I, I guess i wouldn't call it spiritual you know carol's no, not but it like is it is religious spir- you know it is religious it is re- that's religious not but not spiritual no, it's no. culty religious it's like dogmatic and all this but it's like yeah i don't know there's something to that but it's, it's trying to take the place of spirituality i mean it's that's that's it's introduced to her in the first scene in the locker room where it's like maybe you are more than this thing that you thought you were Maybe you're being influenced by all mm-hmm. of these subtle things and whatever. We just want to open your mind to these possibilities of this larger world or whatever. It's an attempt to open your mind to things, to get you woke or something, um, which yeah, I think yeah, is yeah. kind of a spiritual, you know, motivation. Um, but mm-hmm. it is this very much like self-help guru sort of speak taking that place as opposed to, you know, real spirituality or religion sort of taking that place. Um, Is there anything to the idea that she doesn't sweat? Is that a condition that's real? I don't know. I think probably it has to do with, did did you see her in the class later? She's just standing there. (laughs) 
Yes, yeah, true. She I think like maybe she doesn't sweat just because she like doesn't fucking put in any effort like ever, and she just like goes to these classes to just be like, oh, I'm so I'm here and I did it and I'm so frail that I can't do it and. Then I go and it's like, oh, you didn't even sweat at all. It's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just so special. Like, I'm so frail. I don't ever sweat. It's just, <laughs> I don't know, you know. Still, still, apparently the, apparently the inability to sweat is called uh, anhydrosis, right? And it can lead to skin conditions, connective tissue diseases, uh, conditions affecting the central or peripheral nervous system, right? I mean, I'm yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there's a condition like that. There's conditions for everything, but I, I don't think. I don't know. Maybe, but maybe that's not she, something she. I just. I think that's an interesting detail to put in there that they mention she doesn't sweat. Yeah. And but that's not something she ever focuses on in the rest of the movie as like a condition she has or something that's making her sick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. But whatever. That's you know. There's like that's just there's a lot of details in this movie like that. I feel um, that kind of create the nuance and yeah like i i do think todd haynes is being ironic i'm by no means trying to say he's siding with your (laughs) gen z viewers and whatever um you know but i do i don't think it's a didactic work that's like specifically just trying to say no it's never about the environment it's all in your head it's all just a psychosomatic thing it's you know I think it's. It I has think a it's conversation. I think it's both. I mean, it's talking about how the environment affects people, but how the environment affects people is not in the ways that people understand it necessarily. You know what I mean? That's, like Carol okay, understands yeah, yeah, it true. as the environment's making her sick through like whatever means somebody tells her. If it's if it's you know corporations are telling you what to think and whatever, then it's that. If it's that you know there are invisible chemicals everywhere that are infiltrating your mind, then it's that. But Sure. I guess like you can be poisoned by many different things in your environment, even ideas. Exactly. And that I think is the real thing is that's the real thing that pollutes her is like that flyer in that thing in that locker room or the book that Mm -hmm. her friends read about feminism or whatever. (laughs) Or like like any idea that got her like questioning her reality. That I think was her big problem. Yeah, but, like, if she hadn't questioned reality, she'd still be living that, like, really... I mean, do you think the existence she was living was valuable? It was banal, right? It was empty. It was, like... Yeah, just like her. There wasn't really much there. Exactly. So, she's she's empty because her environment was empty, or she was always empty, so she was attracted to an empty environment? You know what I mean? It's, like, there's a... I think there's definitely part of that, but I think that part of the thing is, like... She and her empty environment existed, and then she was told that there should be more to life than this, and that destroyed her ability to exist in that environment. You know what I mean? But she didn't have like the tools to actually exist in any other environment except a self, like a self-destructive, victimizing one. Yeah, of course. I mean, she like she was not built for another environment. She was built for this environment. She's just like supposed to be dealing with couches all the time. That's she's so she's like the dumbest character in a movie, dude. She's like almost retarded. Like she's like, she literally like is like nothing except somebody who's repeating the things that somebody else had said earlier that day in order to try and fit in and be like normal. Oh, yeah, that also reminds me of the scene, like, when she, later on with her friend, you know, she's, like, saying, I've discovered this or that, or that I'm reacting to this, or yeah. blah, blah, blah. 
and her friend's like, well, what's good is that you've learned all this really interesting stuff about chemicals and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, yeah, I've just become more aware. I'm just more aware of things now. Like she actually has like a sense of superiority because of this whole thing as well. Right, right. That she's now like... She's woke. She's like, she actually understands shit and she's like above it now. Exactly. Like all you people are like living in this toxic environment and you don't know why you're sick, but I know why we're sick. Right. Whatever. And you don't even know that you're sick. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't even know. Yeah. All you people don't even know that you're (laughs) sick. Me, I'm suffering so much because I know why you're sick. You know, there's there, that is wokeness Mm -hmm. fucking to a T. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, I can barely get through a week without sobbing over this or that or whatever. And it's like, all of you people just don't even know. And it's like, nah, dude, we know it's just, you're freaking out over that for real. Like, I, all right. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't take, I didn't take a, uh, the wokeness thing is hilarious. That's why I was like, this movie just feels so ahead of its time. Or it's just like, yeah, it was. It's a canary in the coal mine thing. Where like this has been going on for a while, but it was much more fringe in at this point in the mid nineties. It was or something that was starting. Like, fucking, it was something that was starting. You yeah, know? and that and Todd Haynes was noticing fucking culture. Todd Haynes, who was very yeah, interested yeah, yeah, in yeah. the self victimization of you know the uh, the affluent white woman in 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 uh, Karen Carpenter. And uh, continues it in safe. We're talking about this totally like mm-hmm. a disease of affluent white women <laughs> that like have nothing to actually be sick about and nothing to actually be upset yeah, about, yeah, 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 except yeah. that like their lives are so. The thing is, like, I th- I think that when we're talking about like she would have been fine if this hadn't you know infiltrated her environment, like. There is the point in the beginning of the movie when she's having sex with her husband, where she's just lying there, not enjoying it. Um, that's no, before that's all like of the, this yeah, starts. This is like the third shot of the movie. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that part of it is like she's not happy in this situation. And so. No, I know. Yeah. She's looking for something. Looking to, for something to get yeah. her out of I mean, this. She's, or she's, to excuse she's the way that she for feels. It, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, mid, it's a midlife crisis situation. Exactly. Exactly. Like, how long has this been going on? I mean, she literally says, like, like, what is this? Where am I? When she's sitting in bed and she was, like, writing the note and her husband comes in. Yeah. What did that remind you, know, you of? Like, what are you doing? And she just. Did that, did that scene uh, remind you of anything? Because it, it blew me away how much it reminded me of something last time. Her, her whole, like, actually, like, her whole story for most of the first half of this movie is completely season one Betty Draper. Okay. <clears throat> like. Betty asking Don, like, what's wrong? Like, do I need to see a psychiatrist? And Don just being like, yeah, okay, I guess. Like, fine. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Where she, like, keeps fucking sure, up over sure. and over and her hands yeah. are shaking and she's like, all of that stuff where it's just like Don just being like, all right, like, sure, I guess we can go to the meeting and learn about chemicals and yeah, you can go to the fucking cult or whatever. Like, it's, that's very much a, uh, a season one, uh, Betty Draper situation in Mad Men. Uh, sure, that I think may was, have even been informed by Safe to some degree. Oh, completely. Sure yeah, I think it's. I think it's totally like yeah. overtly. I mean, her talking to the psychiatrist when the psychiatrist like asks her to talk about herself and she really can't and stuff. Like, there's a lot of that. I think um, in Mad Men. Yeah, this is like the definitive existential crisis, like housewife movie. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, I think Mad Men does a really good job with it, but. I think yeah, like oh, yeah, her yeah, in does. bed yeah. saying like, I mean, Mad "Where Man am goes I?" Farther with it, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, 
There are a lot of cars in this movie too, though. I noticed that like he does go out of his way to like have lots of shots with cars and like transition yeah, scenes, yeah. like of just cars, like cars on highways. And when she's sitting there, when she's sitting there with her uh, friend at lunch, there's just cars driving in the background, yep, and like she's. Yep. You know, driving in a car, the whole first shot of the movie is, like, from the perspective of a car driving up the the street and into the garage. And then there's the whole thing of, like, the car dropping her off at the, you know, at the uh, commune. The woman coming out being like, no, no, you can't go drive in. You know, it's like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a, a, a lot of focus of like the idea that the car is around all the time and spewing toxins into the air or whatever. Totally, totally. I mean, um, we have close-ups of tailpipes and shit. Mm-hmm. And I think like, you know, like we said, it's like, yeah, maybe it's all this psychosomatic thing, but there is all this like visual information and like off, you know, like environmental information that does suggest that like actually maybe, like, I don't know, like, like I'm willing to accept that there is some truth to the idea that we live in an environment that's like more has more radiation in it and there's like toxic chemicals just like in everyday use all over the place and like things that aren't being regulated properly or like i mean just thinking about when like gasoline used to have lead in it you know yeah, yeah, yeah. that was like a demonstrably terrible thing that had a terrible effect on an entire generation of children yeah, yeah yeah totally like these things are true even if like they could be just used as an excuse for someone like Carol, you know? No, it's true. Um, but, I mean, of those people who were breathing in lead every day, what percentage do you think had, like, headaches all the time or always felt sick or frail or blah, 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 or whatever? Or, like, didn't, like, 99% of those people just kind of, like, feel fine and then die of cancer and shit? Like... You know what I mean? Like it's it's like letting that get in the they way. They didn't of have it. like a psychosomatic illness, probably. Yeah, like maybe eventually they realized they were actually sick and had and like were debilitated and all this stuff. And but that is a thing where it's like plenty of people got sick, and there was enough people getting sick that they got down to the bottom of it. Oh, it's the lead and the fucking gasoline. You know, it's like that was an example of like a really intense and like there are these examples that exist in reality of like a chemical or environmental thing like creating a lot of damage and destruction in people. Totally, totally. You know, or like a chemical spill that like gets it like infects a water supply of a town or something like yeah. that. Or I mean, uh, t- Todd Haynes actually is. does a whole movie on that uh, called Dark Waters oh, many years really? later. Okay, yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. on topic. Um, about, what is um, it? Um, it? It's nonstick like stuff, whatever that's called. Um, but the nonstick stuff on pans. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a whole movie about that stuff. Forever Chemicals. Weird. So, yeah, no, I think that stuff does exist. Um, And I think, you know, I I think that Haynes acknowledges that stuff exists. Um, But I think that that stuff exists just as much for the husband and the son. Um, You know what I mean? (laughs) And I think the thing about Carol is that she gains power from her illness. In a way that her husband mm-hmm. and son are just kind of like, they don't want illness, so they don't get illness. Um, Carol kind of needs illness to legitimize her own sort of frailty and inability to do anything and sort of legitimize her place as a homemaker because she can no longer be a housewife and whatever, because that would be 
like she should be more than just a housewife because this is the nineties and we're feminists now. And like, let's yeah. free ourselves from all of these previous ways of thinking and sort of become the person we're supposed to be and whatever. And it's like, dude, maybe the, maybe for some of you, the only person you're supposed to be is like a really basic fucking person. And you know, the more well, you think yeah, about I mean, these things, the more you're the just going to misinterpret um, stuff and you know, make yourself. Well, do you remember what Claire says to her? Like when she's crying and then Claire comes in and comforts her and then, yeah, she tells her like, practice self-love essentially and whatever but like she says like everything was taken from me and what was left was me right and like that's kind of what's happening with carol right is that like in the end like everything is taken from her and she says i love you in a mirror but she is there's nothing there like she can't she couldn't describe like a room that she had as a child right right? in that one activity or whatever and then like this whole birthday speech thing that's just a totally incoherent thing that trails off like Right. It really does. It's like maybe there are people who go through this process and really do discover who they are, but what if there's nothing there? Right. You know? <laughs> like that's the difference, I guess, is just like actually having no per- like identity and humanity and that it's just defined by all these external things and nothing else. Right. Right. You and know? just finding another thing to create your definition. Um Mm-hmm. Like I'm now going to be defined by this AIDS cult leader guy and my victimhood mm-hmm. and the fact that I can't exist with the rest of you people. And that's why I get to exist in this special way where, you know, everything's paid for and I never have to see my husband. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Everything that I kind of want <laughs> uh, is is settled. I don't know. A sad man who runs from his wife and kids. <laughs> that's right but that's right yeah uh i i feel like this could be a good segue point for may december as well yeah um, yeah let's uh let's keep talking on may december but uh I think, do a do a break real quick let's do a break real quick cheers Yeah, so moving on to May-December, um, the character that Carol reminds me the most of in this movie is Elizabeth, Natalie Portman's character. Okay, interesting. Yeah, like I kind of, if we're going to talk about someone who sort of like doesn't have an identity and is sort of like fascinated by those she considers to be sick, I think Elizabeth fits that mold really well. Like, I think Elizabeth is a character who who finds Gracie um, to be a sick person that, like, who exists, who exists in this kind of gray area of morality, and she, like, very much wants to understand that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think, like, Elizabeth, you know, as an actress and all this stuff, doesn't really have much of her own personality. And it's literally the thing of, like, her entire personality is just coming from the environment, which is Gracie and Joe's household and their relationship with one another. And she's literally there to absorb them and become her and all this kind of stuff. Totally. You know? Totally. Um, In a total actressy way. uh, 
Yeah, so, I mean, I think this this does connect very well to Superstar and Safe in that sense that, like, I mean, I mean, she also is, like, she has the asthma, right? And she, like, has to use that nebulizer, and there, like, is an element of her character that's, like, she actually is dealing with a sickness, right? Right, right. But I think Gracie is the one that's, like, at least in the beginning, the one who's set up to be, like, oh, wait, Gracie is, like, the one who's sick, right? Because she started, like, sleeping with this 12-year-old or 13-year-old or whatever it is. Right. You know, when she was in her 30s. And, like, this is the thing we're examining is the sickness of a type of person that would have sex with a child. But, like, the longer the movie goes on, the more it's just kind of like, I don't know, actually, is Elizabeth the one who's really sick here? (laughs) You know, like, and Gracie's actually, like, you know, when Gracie in the end says, like, I'm secure. And, like, just kind of calls, like, everything um, Elizabeth knows into question. Like, do you actually understand this person at all? You know, or like, no, totally. I think that's. I think that's all there. I think you're right. I think that that's an interesting layer of the movie. The the whole layer of this movie that's being made about the scandal, yeah, and the way mm-hmm. that we're dealing with the scandal in the media specifically, like that. And and you sure. know, this is there. There's going to be a recreation of this story. There's already been a recreation of this story that she watches in the middle. That's like a porny sort of you know, salacious version of the story. Um, and they're trying sure. to do a indie movie or whatever um, to do this story justice. At least she's trying to do this story justice. Now, when we actually see the <laughs> movie in the end, it looks pretty much as porny and lame as the earlier attempt. Um, yeah, it does. It really does. It's kind of like cringy. Yeah, it's really cringy. Um, it's like that you would that you would hang out with this family and you'd hang out with her and that this is what it's amounting to. Yeah, that I think is hilarious. It's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because it is like she she is trying to be a real actress and do this thing or whatever in a way that like I feel like if you were trying to make a real piece of art, you kind of would want this woman to do this. <laughs> you know what I mean? To actually like uh-huh. go there yeah, and connect yeah, yeah. to this, but. If you're making a real piece of art, why would you make it about this? And if you would, like, it wouldn't be about connecting to that. Like, I, like you know what I mean? There's something, there's something really like he, because the movie that's being made kind of is the movie that's being made, right? It kind of is May December that we're talking about as this like, you know, sure, revisitation yeah. of this story that, you know, except. Except as far as I know, Julianne Moore didn't go hang out with Mary Kay Letourneau, right? No, Mary Kay Letourneau is dead. Yeah, she died in 2020. Yeah, of cancer. Um, Yeah, so this happens before that, obviously. (laughs) However, I would not be surprised if Mary Kay Letourneau did invite Julianne Moore into her home because I think, um, I mean, I didn't do a ton of research on Mary Kay Letourneau, but like, one thing I noticed about this movie is kind of like how this is unspoken and safe is how Peter makes his money. I was like, how did she make all this money? Like, they clearly have a nice home and they have money. And, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe's clearly not doing anything. It's like... Well, she's got, then, she's got like her mo- business. Well, that yeah, but that can't be the way she made that money. <laughs> no, she's got her business, her cake business. That all of the, yeah. you know, neighbors pay for cakes that they don't even eat because they just feel bad for her. 
Like she's got a business that's the same business that fucking the girl in the rehearsal has. <laughs> like she's, she's like they like people come and like put carrots in the ground for her to dig up. <laughs> you know what I mean? People are like pretending uh-huh. that she's got a business in order to like create this fantasy life for her. But like she does not have a fucking sure. business <laughs> like at all. And no, I think that what's interesting is how she made her money in real life is basically off of the yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to get to. That yeah, off, off of the story and like, the tabloids and the interviews and exactly. whatever. So yeah. for their wedding, actually, they gave rights to, I forget what it was. It wasn't TMZ, but it was, you know, some news outlet to their wedding video for like for like $750,000 or something. Like some huge amount of money. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years later for their 10th anniversary, they're doing more interviews. And, you know, they did interview. Like, so there, there's there's a lot of that, that they've lived off of this story for a long time. He, in real life, mm-hmm. um, we haven't even introduced. It, it's it's kind of based off of Mary Kay Letourneau and uh, Vili, what's his name? Uh, Falau. Falau. Yeah. Um, mm mm-hmm. And their real romance or whatever. But, yeah, Villy apparently in real life is, like, um, like a DJ. He's, like, DJ uh, controversy or something. <laughs> He's, like, like, <laughs> and, and, like, he apparently, like, used that, like, his whole thing as his DJ, like, personality and whatever. And they even had, like, a hot for teacher night at one point that they bring up in some of these interviews. Like, he, you know, mm-hmm. where they, like, take pictures with Mary Kay Letourneau. She does signings and whatever at his show that's hot for teacher. Like, so they, like, they lived off of this. Hot for teachers, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But that's not mentioned in the movie. And I thought that was interesting to, like, find that out through research is, like, that's, like, obviously what's happening in the movie, too, even though it's unspoken. Right. They made, like, like like millions or something off of their story. Right. They exploited their story to, like, find the American dream or whatever it is. Right. And that's um, that's some, you know, collusion between them and, and you know, the Hollywood people um, that they have to deal yeah, with, this, exactly. this actress in their house. Um, it's, mm-hmm. uh, but that's why I wouldn't be so surprised that Mary Clay Letourneau would like invite julianne more into right, her house right. even though i don't think that's i could what see happened that happen. or whatever it's like no it didn't happen yeah exactly but it like could if, have that, happened. if that was another opportunity to make another million or whatever they would take it you know yeah well apparently Vili has come out and said that he's very upset about this movie that he was not contacted um that they're using this story without rights and whatever um which, That's the exact opposite of what's happening in the movie. Yeah, it's interesting. Which, yeah, which, uh, you know, is something that Todd Haynes has been doing for some time. <laughs> you know what it's I mean? It's true, yeah. It's really connected um, to the Karen Carpenter thing. Completely, yeah, yeah, completely. Sure. And, you know, is he doing this in a way that is like, you know, like Superstar? Is this something that is a really empathetic portrayal of this situation? Or is this something that's kind of, you know, a fuck you? Um, in some ways, I think I think it's interesting. Like you, you were talking a lot about the the making of the movie sort of aspect of the story, but I think that the actual relationship between them, between Mary Kay Letourneau and Vili, um, as depicted in the movie, is really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of feel like like one of the things that I think is so interesting about Todd Haynes, like we said before, is his the whole semiotics major thing that he's got going on in all these movies where it's like very much about this dialectic and this argument and presenting an argument in a certain way in which like you can't hold him to anything. Just like if you ask him about mm-hmm. Superstar, he'll talk about how it's supposed to be an empathetic portrayal of, you know, Karen Carpenter. 
Um, if you ask about safe, I don't know what he would say. I don't, but I'm pretty sure he would say that it was probably a movie about a person who was really affected by the actual toxins in their environment. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't. I think that he is somebody who doesn't acknowledge the irony in his movies, um, and I think that that's part of what makes them so interesting. Is because what is interesting about safe, like, is that irony. Um, what is interesting mm-hmm. about you know, superstar is that irony. And I think similarly, like what's interesting about this movie is that irony. So if you're, if you're looking at this as a dialectic, like I think that what's interesting is you can like think of this as an edgy idea for a movie, right? In 2023 or in 20, yeah, 2023 to make a movie about an age gap romance amongst all this age gap romance discourse and whatever is edgy you know Uh what i mean that's like an edgy subject and like to do it with the gender reversed mary Kay letourneau story whatever it's an edgy interesting thing to Uh do um but then what he does in that movie is he really like tells that story in a way that's totally not edgy at all like as far as its commentary on age gap relationships this is not like a acceptance of of age gap relationships as non-problematic like you know what i mean it's it's very much like a thing that's like there is a power dynamic here that like can't really be corrected for or whatever. And that he may still feel like a victim or he may not or whatever, but there's something there that is more complicated than, you know, it wasn't just two people fell in love and every, like the, the society was against them. Like, you know what I mean? There's something more complicated Mm -hmm. and and dark happening in their relationship. And I think that that's like not an edgy. Who is in charge? Well, this, Who this, is in charge? <laughs> well, this is the thing, man. This is the thing. I think that that's not an edgy thing to say, right? Like, but mm-hmm. I think that the way that he goes about saying it ends up being a very edgy, sort of interesting conversation about something else. And yeah, specifically, I think that the the whole thing rests on who was in charge, which is completely a line out of a Mary Kay Letourneau interview. Like, she, I forget which interview it is, but there's some interview where she's like being asked, like. You know, these were the power dynamics in the situation. You were older. He was younger. Like, so you did have like some sort of superiority in this relationship or whatever. And she was like, no, no. Who was in charge? Who was in charge? Like, who was the boss? Like, he was always in charge. He was like, and it's like, it's a very interesting thing for the movie to recreate completely. Um, The other character that reminds me of Carol from Safe is Joe, who's playing Villy. Right, like he, it's the role, it's the role, role reversal thing, like you just said. Joe is like the young housewife who was swept up by an older, more powerful man or whatever. I mean, not that right. she was like really that much more powerful, except in the age difference and the fact that she was his teacher, so right. had a kind of like thing over him. But he is going through a similar like midlife crisis thing that Carol is as well, where like all of a sudden, like Elizabeth comes into their lives, right? And because Elizabeth is asking them all these questions and trying to mirror them and get to the bottom of, like, what happened between them, it's starting to open up all these things that maybe he hadn't even considered before she arrived, right? Right. And it's, like, this new environmental factor, Elizabeth, that's beginning to make him question, like, what went down or whatever. Because, like, he's like, oh, wait, maybe I don't actually understand what went down or I've actually never thought about it. And, like, we've never actually had these conversations. And right. it's like... It's like the it's like the therapist opening up your past traumas that you weren't that weren't really agonizing you right, right. up until that point, you know? And like all of a sudden he's not willing to take all the responsibility even though she's like, You seduced me and who is in charge, you know what I mean? Right. It's like 
Maybe I wasn't ready to make those decisions. Maybe, but, but, you know. Right. Maybe I was too young. She, like, Elizabeth becomes this kind of mirror that, like, backfires because they initially invite her into the home to hopefully represent them in a way that, like, to, like, so that they can finally be understood. But the problem is they don't actually understand themselves and their entire thing is, like, a facade that starts to break down. They don't want to be understood. Yeah, yeah. That's they don't the really want to be understood. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is the thing that, like, so this this really... Watching the interviews um, with with Villy and Mary Kay Letourneau, um, it's really interesting because it, it just completely feels like watching this movie where, like, Mary Kay Letourneau is trying to, like, respond to these questions in a way that's, like, she's trying to create her narrative. Like, you know what I mean? She's trying to be like, no, well, this mm-hmm. was always very sweet. It was never bad. Like, I don't like the way you're asking that question. And, like, for you to insinuate that I was his teacher doesn't really take into account that I was his teacher in second grade, but I wasn't his teacher in seventh grade when this actually happened. I was a different teacher, and we met outside of school. We were actually both taking colleges, like, courses at the college together. So we were actually, like, like co-students. And when I, like, you know, she's always trying to, like, change around this narrative. Whereas, like, when they ask Villy stuff, like, he's actually kind of trying to be like, yeah, I don't know. Like, it kind of was hard for me. Like, I don't know if, like, nobody around me could help me with this and that. Like, and he's kind of trying to, like, respond to this. He seems like a really dumb guy. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? He kind of just mm-hmm. seems like a guy that's, like, he never really thought about this before this moment. But, like, now that you bring it up, I, like, yeah. Or, like, there are other moments where it seems like he's trying to, like, speak out. Like, you know what I mean? And Mary Kay Letourneau mm-hmm. is, like, trying to... Like, um, one of the moments they ask him, like, you know, okay, so you've been married for 10 years. Has it been 10 happy years, you know? And he's like, well, I don't think it's ever mm-hmm. 10 happy years. You know, it's kind of... You know, there's never any 10 happy years in any marriage. It's always about, you know, the ups and the downs. And it's more about how you get through the hard times than it is, you know. It's like, that's not mm-hmm. what Mary Kay wants him to say. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can tell that, yeah, like, yeah, Mary yeah. Kay Letourneau wanted to be like, yeah, like, we're great. We love you, whatever. And he's just like, well, no, to respond to your question, like, I don't know, like, marriages have their ups and downs. and uh, But, like, he doesn't ever say, like, I like my marriage with her. <laughs> like, he often, like, every time he's asked something like that, he's like, so I was like, yeah, no, it's really hard. Like, it's always been really hard. <laughs> like, I'm very depressed. I, like, don't know. Like, you know what I mean? It's And she's always kind of trying yeah, to present yeah. this, like, it was never sexual. It was never whatever. It was always just love and whatever stuff. And he doesn't ever seem to be quite getting it out. She's trying to, like, mitigate this whole thing and, and correct mm-hmm. for this story and whatever. And... I don't know. That same vibe has totally got across in the movie. You know what I mean? Where when she asks him any questions, like Mary Kay's like jumping in and trying to answer, like, but it's only when he gets alone with her. Well, at first when Elizabeth has him alone, he's not willing to really say anything. Right, right. Um, Like over time, she kind of seduces him. Exactly. Because he's never really had anything else besides uh, Gracie, Mary Kay. Right, right. and, like, he actually, like, yeah, he hasn't lived. He never actually had an opportunity to figure out who he is. And exactly. similarly to Carol and Safe, you know, like, he just has gone along with this because it was the only thing there. Totally. I, I don't know. I, I guess part of it, part of it is the, like, this whole thing of, like, the statute of limitations, right? And, like, looking back on something that happened a really long time ago. Part of the reason why 
we're not so like disturbed by this relationship in the movie is because he's 36 now. And like as a 36 year old, there's nothing really wrong with him wanting to date an older woman and shit like that. But if you were depicting the actual like rape of him when he was 12 or whatever, and like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like if you were actually depicting that period of time, you would feel really gross about it. And you feel like maybe it'd be easier for you to make a judgment call against um, Gracie and whatever. But it's because it happens in such a retrospective way where it's so removed from that, that like, that's also what Elizabeth is like dealing with is this whole thing of like, now we're here, but I'm trying to figure out what it was like back then and what it was like there and what the kind of like morality of that was. And even though everybody can accept it now. Right. But I, I think this is the thing that's so interesting about this though, is like, what is it that she's actually reaching for when she's saying, I want to know what it was like back then? You know what I mean? What are we actually trying to make a movie of if that's what we're trying to make the movie of? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like the first movie that's about them in, in that age group where it's about an older woman seducing the younger guy in this pet store. Um, and then the second movie that she's actually making where she's trying to do that for real what are those movies reaching for? You know, they're trying to be well, they're salacious. Certainly not, yeah, they're trying to be salacious. They're certainly not interested in the story that May December is, like, about years later when they're in a quote-unquote happy marriage or whatever you want to call it. Right. You know, it's they're concerned about the transgressive, like, moment. Exactly. You know. And this is the thing. When you watch interviews with them, and, and like even there's like a whole special um, that they did at one point. They Mary Kay is completely like controlling and, and developing this narrative where she is not willing to talk about the sexuality of it at all. And like every time they try and push her to like, yeah, well, what about that day? Or what about like, how was it that this happened or whatever? Like she always talks about like, well, he told me that like he didn't want to live the rest of his life without me. Or like we had this moment and I looked Mm -hmm. in his eyes and I felt this thing or whatever. But like what everybody's trying to ask is like, yeah, but what about the first time you fucked this kid? How was that? (laughs) You know what I mean? That's what everybody wants to like. And like she's never saying that and he's never saying that or whatever. But there was the trial. And like, so what happened was basically like she got arrested and um, didn't have the trial until after she had had his first kid. And then they had the trial. She was convicted of child rape. And then they took the first child away from her and gave it to him. And he was, you know, a 14 year old. Well, his mom was taking care of her. Right, yeah. right. But yeah. And then she like got, you know, probation and whatever and like got let out like six months later or a year later or whatever and immediately like went and found him again and they started fucking again and they brought her back in. It was like, dude, this was like the one condition. And, and by had that a point, second child. And that point she was already pregnant again. So she went in and she had her second child yeah, yeah, yeah. in jail. Well, like <laughs> he then like lived without her for like a couple of years, like a, a little while until he was like. 18 i think like you know what i mean so and, and during that time he like dated and you know did his own thing according to her um mm-hmm. but what's interesting is during the trial like his mom actually like sued the school to like say that they should have known this and stopped this or whatever and there are like there's footage of some of this trial and some of these specials where he's on 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 the stand and they're asking him like what the, what she did 
And he's saying like, well, she told me that if I, you know, for every right answer I got, she would take off an article of clothing and stuff and that sort of thing, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that is something that is completely never represented in any of the conversations with them about their relationship later on. Um, it's very much about their romance and this developing thing that was so weird. But like, there's none of this like, no, it was hot. I was like, you know, looking at my teacher and she was like, I'll take off my bra if you get this answer right. But like, they never do that salacious thing. The foreplay. Yeah, the, none of that. None of that. None of the sexuality, none of the seduction, none of the foreplay. It's all the just about how it's sweet playing, and yeah. innocent and how we ended up together. And so that proves that there was nothing salacious about it. And it was all just a sweet story. So you guys trying to get a salacious story. I'm just telling you that it's not salacious. It's actually very wholesome and blah, blah, blah. And that's the whole thing they're trying yeah, to say we're just, all along. We're just two people in love. Just exactly. two people in love. And like yeah. Villy occasionally is like, yeah, well, it's really depressing and really hard and whatever. And she's like, yeah, yeah, who are two people in love, right? And, whatever. Um, <laughs> and the interviewers are sometimes like, yeah, yeah, but it was like really, you know, inappropriate and sexual, right? And they're like, no, but it was just people in love. Like, so every time they try and push it, they never actually acknowledge the like real porniness of their actual relationship where like she is, mm -hmm. she's pretending she's the woman in this movie, right? Like, but who she is is the type of woman who was looking at a 12 year old and saying like, I'll take off my bra if you know what years like Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Like, which one was it that she takes it <laughs> off? And then, like, and that is like, whatever. There's something really like kinky and hot. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, that's, that is what people are kind of looking for in this story and they never quite get it. And that's what makes it continue to be interesting or whatever to people in, to this day and stuff. But it is all about kind of True. mitigating that and trying to create this narrative against that when, like, that is the real reality and we all know it. Like, we all know that this is yeah. a relationship between a 35-year-old and a 12-year-old. And so, like, it was kinky and porny and weird. Like, it wasn't just love. Like, yeah. you know? Um, and, and their continued insistence that it is, like, is so bizarre because, like... Maybe she, as she says, she's always been naive and it's been a great strength to her, which I think is the other key to the movie. Maybe she is naive enough to believe that. I don't believe she is, but maybe she is. Mm -hmm. Billy, he was either kept in a box where he never developed enough to be able to believe outside of that or whatever, or he's starting to not believe that, you know, like he's, he's, or he's grown up to the point where he's like, yeah, no, it was weird and porny and kinky and fucked up and that sort of thing. But I don't want to destroy her life. So I'm not going to talk to people like about it, but you know yeah. what I mean? There's, there's, and we never, yeah, we never really know if Gracie like truly believes those things or not. Like you said, if she truly is naive or, and she truly is secure, um, I mean, the word I think safe she is secure, secure because yeah, it's up, safe, safe know? is secure. She is safe to me. I think, I think it's really interesting that you think that, she really reminds you of um, Natalie Portman because I really connect her to Carol. I think she's drinking milk uh, throughout the movie a couple of times. I, 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 I mean, really... they're all Carol. What? I mean, they're all Carol. Yeah, yeah. The way I would connect Gracie to Carol, yeah, she's drinking milk, whatever, all that. But, like, I also think the other sort of unspoken thing is her relationship with her previous husband. And one of the things about Mary Kay... Um, Letourneau is that like Mary Kay Letourneau had 
higher ambitions for college before she was married mm -hmm. and then kind of had to like settle for being a, a elementary school teacher. Mm -hmm. So I think there's part of that there, this sort of like bitterness of like also being put into like the housewife position and not being able to make as much of your life or whatever. And there's some of that kind of like punching down or like, you know, paying it forward, the kind of like abuses, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. like entrapping someone else or whatever. Yeah. I mean, Billy did not graduate um, high school um, because he had kids and stuff. So he never could, you know, do any of those things either um, because of his yeah, relationship. Yeah. I mean, I see, I see the theme. Yeah, yeah, like I, I see the themes of safe and I see Carol's like character being represented in like most of these characters. Right. That's what I kind of think is like, you know, it is still kind of a conversation about the same sort of like sickness that Carol has, but like kind of expanded or whatever into a few different characters that so it can talk about it in a, a kind of different way, but still. It's not as focused on sickness, I guess, but that's still definitely a part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, is like, do we see Gracie as someone who's sick? Right. Do we see Joe as someone who's sick? Right. Do we see Elizabeth as someone who's sick? Are these sick, twisted individuals who are broken and fucked up, and that's why they make the decisions they do? Or are they victims? Or are they victims? You know, yeah. And like, are these narrative? Are these just narratives they're creating to like make peace with their sicknesses? Like, right. I am secure, but it's like, no, you're actually fucking the sickest. Right. You know, you're like, you're you're fucking irredeemable or whatever. I don't really like pass personal judgments based on these characters based on what we see in this movie. You know, that's like what I think is interesting about it. I think it'd be a lot easier if we were portraying the salacious events of this 36 year old seducing this 12 year old. And it's like, you know what I mean? But then you're like, then you're telling the story that like no one really knows, but you're right. That's what people are interested in. That's what Elizabeth is interested in. Right. I mean, when she like interviews her, that's, what she, that's why she wants to go to the, to the stock room. Yeah. Yeah. She yeah. She goes like to the pet store guy and then she's like, can I go to the stock room? And he's like, Oh really? That's okay. Fine. You need yeah, to go yeah, jerk yeah. off in the stock room. <laughs> like, fine. Mm -hmm. And she's and she's getting she's getting off of it, and she eventually has sex with Joe too. Exactly. She's like she really wants all of it. Oh, and know? she's also she's also like talking very sexually to all those children in class. That's true. I mean, yeah, that's that's, that's like one of the scene. most on the nose seeds where she's like, okay, well, I'm talking to this whole class. How do I? Let's talk about fucking like. Yeah, sometimes you start well, the kid, feeling well, the kid you got your naked body That's up. The thing, too, no, the I know, sure, but yeah, the kid's always going to bring it up, dude. If you're up. a hot fucking twenty-year-old yeah, 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 yeah. in a fucking school, that's the point. Like it's she's you don't need to. There's always an opening, <laughs> like, and specifically like Billy talking about it is like he he and his friends were hitting on her for like a while and were trying to look up her skirt and whatever, and it was like a thing of like she's the hot teacher. I'm going to try and go say something and like that sort of thing, mm -hmm. and then she totally just like was seduced you know but it's like that's because every yeah, fucking yeah. class of every group of 13 year old 12 year old boys who has like a super hot teacher like is absolutely going to do that same thing like yeah you know yeah I mean? your sickness is not actually having the self-control to deny that opening exactly you know like 
or to or to start uh, to flirt with that you know what i mean and and that's that's like what you know natalie portman does in that scene she's just kind of like let me feel the power of talking to a bunch of virgins about what it feels like to get fucked in front of a director and everybody looking at you naked and writhing and are you pretending that you're having pleasure are you pretending that you're not having pleasure it's like everybody's kind of taken aback and stuff it's like yeah this is inappropriate and then the girl and then, and then the girl who asked the next question is like, how do you choose your roles? Yeah. Like one of those banal, like, but then she actually does use that as an opportunity to go into the thing where she says moral gray areas are what I'm interested in. Yeah. You know, like I want to understand why people do bad things. And right. Whatever. Right. And Which so like, daughter I think that's it. part of it too, is that like, yeah, the daughter turns against her because she's like, oh, you see my mom as a bad person. You've already made that judgment. You're interested in her because you consider her to be like evil or something, and you're here to understand that evil and that transgression. Or you're interested and in the moral gray what, areas as opposed to interested in yeah, yeah. like excusing her. You're not here to like to side with my mom and tell the story of how it was just love right. and they were just in love and it was cute and it was innocent. You know, you're here to jerk off in to the dive into the reason why my mom is a sick person. And when she, you know, when she interviews uh, her ex-husband, he even literally says like, like why would a 36 year old like get into a relationship with a 13 year old or whatever? You know, it's like, that is just the question that boggles the mind, right? That everyone is so curious, like, yeah, why would you do that? Mm-hmm. What is the thing that drives that? And I don't think the movie actually really gives you an answer necessarily. Mm-hmm. We could say it's because of power. We could say it's because of feeling powerless, you know, and wanting to to attain power. And, like, there is definitely a power struggle happening with uh, Elizabeth in the household and, like, the way she's commanding the situation and turning people on one another and opening all their wounds and confusing everything. Yeah, and then, like, you know, Joe's powerlessness and how that drives him to towards infidelity and whatever. You know, just the need to kind of, like, take power back and control the control the situation and then control the narrative as well, you know? Right. I mean, everything you brought up about Mary Kay sounds like a person who desperately wants to control the narrative. Completely. You know? I really almost like, I mean, when you ask them, like when you ask Billy, like why he was interested in her in the first place or like why, like what he liked about her or whatever is just like, well, she was pretty. Like basically, I think that was it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, dude, because like he was fucking. Old, so yeah, of course, it was, it was like, yeah, she was pretty. <laughs> like, and she's really pretty. She, uh, it, the real Mary Kay Letourneau looks so much like um, Annette Bening. Yeah, yeah. And she's no, like she's, still hot she's in pretty. her like sixties. Mm. Like she's, you know. But it makes sense that if you know there was a twelve-year-old in that class that he'd be interested. It doesn't make sense that she would be interested. <laughs> That's you know. Um, I guess that's the thing is that is what more people are interested. I guess that's also part of it is that like people are more concerned with Mary Kay. She is the one who got in trouble. She is the one who was convicted a sex offender and a rapist, you know? Right. Even that too. Like when I first looked her up, you know, when you, when you read just like the, the blurb, the words registered sex offender for raping a 12 year old child sounds terrible and then you read a little farther and saying oh she didn't just forcibly rape this kid there was actually some weird thing happening here when they actually got married right after you know what i mean it's like 
there's <laughs> there's something about that that really just complicates it, right? That's why it's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, I think if if they if they didn't go on to marry each other and all this stuff, it would be a much more open and shut interest for people. It's just right. like, well, yeah, this isn't complicated. She was just an awful person who raped this child and ruined his life, and that's that. Right. You know. But I mean, would they have gone on and gotten married if they didn't make seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars off of their wedding video? Sure, exactly. Would they? Yeah, maybe it was just like a business opportunity. Right. I mean, even the and reason they got divorced was cited as like like financially related. He apparently wanted to start a marijuana business. Oh, interesting. And like, okay, couldn't like and like being married to her wasn't going to allow him to do that because of her her history and like you know, right. Interesting. If he was going to get like a loan for this marijuana business. Like he couldn't be married to her anymore. Interesting. Interesting. That's why, like, you know, their their divorce was not, like, a contentious one. Like, he was there when she died, and, like, right. his, her estate got left to him and right. stuff like right. that. You know, like, there wasn't – it wasn't a divorce that happened out of, like, a falling out of love in the way we might think or whatever. But that's the thing. It's like, were they ever in love? Was this always a business arrangement? Was this always just kind of, like, a thing he went along with because he felt like he had no other choice? Right. They're all kind of unanswered questions. <clears throat> but tackling that subject matter and the complexities of it is awesome, and I really appreciate this movie for doing so. No, but totally. I think we leave the movie with exactly the same understanding that Elizabeth does. That final moment where Gracie says, you know, and I, you know, my brother's, that was bullshit. My brother's never raped me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Elizabeth really was taking this piece of information to heart. Like, oh, that makes everything make sense now. Mm -hmm. Her brothers raped her. Oh, you know? Yeah. And she was using that. She was really like, but like everything is just like cast into doubt in that final scene. Yeah. She's like, you know, and, and even, even, um, even like Joe tells her like, you don't really know her and stuff. Yeah. Like you've never seen her having one of these like, like baby freakouts over whether or not her cakes are getting bought. Right. You know? Right. Where she's Which like is, crying and whining like a child, like because her cakes aren't being bought. You know what I mean? Which like there's really, like something. really feels like Carol. I mean, insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, man. I mean, totally. this is totally, yeah. This is just this hysterical, like, oh, my cake may not even be eaten. I'm just thinking about it sitting there. It's going to go in the trash. It's just like, shut the fuck up. Like, what and then he goes and eats it, and he's yeah. like, mmm, so and validates good. her and yeah, whatever. Exactly. It's like, exactly. He's just it's like, is that their relationship? Right. Is that what it always has been? That's the seduction game they play? I feel <laughs> like, like if you get in there early enough, like, <laughs> you can develop a pretty toxic relationship, you know? <laughs> yeah, you got to get the kids when they're yeah. young. Yeah. It's like and then, they'll, then they'll stay with you forever. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what's interesting is I think that this... I was talking to a friend who, who was basically like, this movie, like, fucking this type of situation happens all the time in a gender-reversed way. And, like, why are you going to fucking take this, like, one instance of this happening where there's an older woman and, and the younger guy? Like, how come we're not talking about the other way around? It's like, uh, first of all, like, that's not, it's like, why not talk about anything? I don't know. But second of all, like, I think that... <laughs> I think that what's interesting about it is that this can't really be gender reversed in a lot of the ways. You know what I mean? I think that this is like, mm -hmm. yeah, like this, this like um, older man going for younger woman thing definitely happens all the time, much more often than the older woman going for younger man thing. Um, mm -hmm. But in the 
older man, younger women thing, is there ever going to be a moment where that older man is like gaining power the way that she does? You know what I mean? Like, is there ever going to be a thing where that mm-hmm. older man like says, I've always been naive. It's been a great strength to me. Like, you know what I mean? Is there mm-hmm. ever going to be a thing where that older man is like sobbing in order to like have everybody around him validate his lifestyle and pay for him to live? Like, no, this is this movie is very much like like I was saying, like it, it pretends to be edgy and then isn't edgy and then is edgy again. I think the way that it is edgy is it's talking about a, a very specifically feminine power um, and and basically like. The, mm-hmm. the problems of a world that is controlled by, you know, hysteria and, and you know, a very, a very specific type of topping from the bottom that is sort of connected to domesticity and, you know, Carol in, in safe and all of those sort of ideas that I think are a similar making oneself weaker in order to be more powerful, making oneself more of a victim in order to be more powerful. Somebody who could be the older person Certainly. in a relationship and still say, who was the boss? You were the boss. The man would never, like a gender reversed one like that, where it's like, this guy was 30 and he dated a 12 year old girl and then he married her when she turned 16 or whatever. That man is not going to have you that girl and be me. like, well, who was yeah, the boss? Yeah. <laughs> who was the boss? You were the boss. Like, it's like, no, no, that guy knows he's the boss. She knows. Like, the, the thing that's interesting yeah, in yeah. this case is that she sees herself as not the dictator. You know what I mean? She sees herself as mm-hmm. somehow yeah, just a victim yeah. of these circumstances. And it's because she continues to be willfully naive. She's choosing to buy into a narrative that she's creating in which it didn't have anything to do with anything salacious or anything weird, anything sexual. It was all about the, And really, it's like, no, dude, you fucking were taking your clothes off for a 12-year-old if he got answers right. That's that's where this all starts. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And then there's yeah, all these I justifications mean, yeah. that come afterwards and all this, like you justifying it to your son and your husband and you know, the, the press and the courts and whatever. But like really what it was in the first place was something like pretty kinky and weird and, you know, uh, You're right though. I think I could be, conv- I think I could be convinced that Gracie is not actually naive, but that she, has created that that mindset for herself in the way well, that Karen Carpenter created her sickness. In exactly. The way that, exactly. You know, Carol creates hers. Yes. Is that it is real to them. Right. And they are, but they're ignorant of the fact that they are doing it to themselves, even though it is a manufactured thing. And it's a thing that's allowing them to get away with all the things in life that they need to get away with or get away from all the things yeah, in life yeah. they need to get away, get from, away from, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. But it's a justification for all of the things that are wrong in themselves that they are not willing to see. Um, and in this movie, Take it till you make it, bro. Like, Mind over matter. Yeah. <laughs> Totally, totally. <laughs> I guess you should fake it until you have a really nice house and a young, hot husband over faking it until you shit yourself to death. Yeah. But but either way, I mean, it seems it seems pretty, I don't know, pretty bleak. I don't know that living there with her husband in an empty nest is going to be that great either. Like, it's, I don't know. Everything yeah. is pretty bleak about these movies. Yeah. Pretty bleak movies. Yeah. But awesome movies. I yeah. like these movies a lot. Totally. One thing I didn't find um, that bleak 
Um, in fact, I found it quite heartwarming. Although I guess you could argue it has like an edge of bleakness to it um, or sadness. Is uh, the scene where he smokes weed with his son? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's one of these moments that like Todd Haynes does a really good job of being empathetic, like as well as like not like this is a really empathetic moment where mm-hmm. I think. He has that line where he said, I don't know if I'm like being real with you or if I'm making a bad memory sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Where like Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a cringy like thing, but it's also like really real and it's really connected to Mm -hmm. all the themes of the fucking movie where it's like he doesn't know if he's being real with his son or if he's creating a bad memory for him by being too real and being too present, which is what his wife did to him many, many years ago was be too real and then sucked his dick because he knew when, you know, who was the second president of the United States. No, you're right, man. That is actually a bit of a microcosm. Yeah, that's... But that's, that's the thing about Haynes, man. I think I, I think all these movies, like, the like if you watch them kind of a first time through and you don't pay that much attention, like, they can kind of wash over you and, like, just be about that sort of thing. But the more you kind of think about them afterwards, the more like every single little scene is a part of this, you know, rhetorical conversation that contributes to like different sides of this argument. Um, And that's one of them where it's like this is just like kind of a one off line thing or whatever. But like, no, this is actually very deeply connected to the entire essence of the molestation in the first place. Um, but from mm-hmm. like a kind of yeah. opposite point of view and in a way where you're really empathizing with him. Like, you know what I mean? Because it's, he's out totally, of control yeah. and he's just like too high and he doesn't know if he's making a bad decision or making his son traumatized over him being so, you know, his son's already like, dude, sure, I don't look yeah. up to you. You're like, <laughs> I don't know. His son's already like m- more mature than he is because he hasn't been stunted. Um, same mm-hmm. with his daughters. But he's a really sad character, man. Um, but I, yeah, I really, I really feel character. like what's, what's really interesting about his character and discussing this, you know, oppressive matriarchy thing in today's sort of paradigm, is one of the other, like I've said like four times, the key to this movie. <laughs> one of the other keys to this movie um, is the scene early on where um, they're at the dinner table, and she's asking what their relationship is like with her other children. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And she she turns to Natalie Portman. She's like, why do you need to know that? So, like, the movie takes place between 2001 and 2003. Why would you need to know what comes later? And Natalie Portman has that line where she says, uh, there are things that exist inside people that don't necessarily come to head until later, and I try and look for the seeds of those things. Mm, yeah. That's why you look at something in in a time period is that, it may reveal the things that come later. There may be things in here that are seeds of the things that come later. You know what I mean? Or there are things that are happening now that point to seeds from the past or whatever. You can it's like exactly. the detective work where you're like, yeah. Right. Either the present the present mm-hmm. has seeds of the past, but the past has seeds of the present. One of the things that I think connects to this, and I think that's most interesting about this entire movie, is the very last scene where you actually see the time code in the bottom left corner of the screen. Did you see what year it was? I did not. So it was 2015. That's when this movie takes place. It's 2015. What did that come... 
what is that talking about this is also a period piece like safe yeah takes place yeah weird it takes place a few years earlier but why would you put a movie in 2015 is it why why would it be talking about like in 2023 why are we making a movie that took place back in 2015 what's happened since then as I think, you know, 2016, Trump. 2017, we've got, yeah, Trump, Trump and Me Too, Me Too yeah. and, you know, yeah. all of this sort of, uh, you know, takeover of a sort of matriarchal, uh, self-victimizing um, sort of culture uh, in which we've got a lot of villies out there. You know what I mean? I think that mm-hmm. there's, a, yeah. there's a bunch of these poor incels and, <laughs> you know, and okay. I think, okay. you know, I think that's that's really what this movie's talking about. And that's why I think it's kind of edgy is that it's seeds mm-hmm. of something that is to come and then it's placed in 2015 mm. and it's about an evil matriarchy and it, you know, I don't know. I find that to be very interesting in that, like, I see those characters as representative of the modern era in, like, a real way. When you've got, you know, somebody like Mary Kay Letourneau uh, going on TV and saying, who was the boss? He was the boss. He was the boss. He was in charge. It's like, why? What? Because he was a man? Like, that's just, that's it? You're just automatically just a victim and you automatically can be just naive, like willfully naive and walk into situations that you yourself caused, Mm -hmm. but then pretend that you yourself didn't have anything to do with it because there was no seduction involved in any way. Like, no, no, I'm the victim. You were in charge and you, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is, it's a very specific type of feminine power that uh, this movie is satirizing. And I believe is connecting to the modern era through that, uh, that 2015 juxtaposition where it's like this, this was a, canary in the coal mine for things to come just like you could say safe was or whatever but just like the idea that this mary kay letourneau case existed and was interesting in the culture and whatever the reasons for that and all of that really reveals a lot about where we are today um even though it's not about anything like it's completely before all of these dynamics it still like contains those seeds of what was to come completely and the seeds of what was to come obviously affected the movie that they made. You know what I mean? Because they made this movie in 2023. Totally, yeah. Like it's it's aware of these paradigms, but it chose to place it in a different a different time before that thing was to come to a head, um, which I thought was very nice interesting. catch. Uh, yeah, nice catch on the year because they weren't obvious about that in the way they were with Safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was well. They Pretty... waited until the very end of the movie, and then it was placed in there as like a you know, like a Easter egg, like conclusion, you know, like a exclamation point sort of thing. Um, it's mm-hmm. like, yeah. Well, fuck yeah, man. Lots to think about. Yeah. But Todd Haynes, weird guy. Todd Haynes, weird guy. <laughs> I like his movies. I love the aesthetics of uh, May, December as well. It's like very, it's very close to safe in its aesthetics as well. Totally. I really like the way it's shot and then the music and, um, just like a very aesthetically amazing movie, how very well crafted. I, I really felt like when like May December started, I felt like I was watching an older movie. I was like, this feels like an actual film. Right, it's like right. rare that you'll like watch a Netflix film and be like, this feels like a movie. It's like right. no, this feels like a TV show or something. It just feels like a, you know. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Netflix, this was. My my biggest problem with May December was that it was a Netflix movie, because fucking watching yeah, it on Netflix was terrible, dude. Like it, yeah. On my TV, I had a bunch of um fucking 
those edges and shit. Like, what are they called? It's like like banding. There's a ton of banding, banding. and shit. Like, that was just, like, super yeah, distracting. Because yeah, yeah. it's a pretty dark movie. Um, and whenever there was, mm-hmm. like, dark shadows, there's, like, lines of, like, green through the black of, like, weird banding shit. It's like, this is really bad coding. Because, like, I got a nice 4K TV. Like, it's just... It's Netflix's bullshit algorithm is doing a really bad job of like, yeah, it's 4K theoretically, but it's like not with any of the, you know, colors in between. Like, I don't know. You know, they don't need to care about that because most people don't fucking notice these things. I mean, there's a whole like most people like don't even know how to turn their motion smoothing off when they buy a new TV. Yeah, I know. But. It's just a disaster at this point, the quality control of things. I'd prefer to watch a DVD than to watch a 4K, like, Netflix fucking transfer because yeah. the, the encoding on Netflix is so inferior. Like, I, I can't deal with it. It's distracting. Like, a DVD, you can get over it. Your mind can correct for it. Like, the encoding on Netflix is just, like, this banding shit that pops up, like, where there's weird rainbows in people. Like, it's stupid. But whatever. It's no, yeah. Not, neither here nor there. I almost there. watch everything streaming, so I always have this problem, and I'm used to it. But, yeah. yeah. It'd be nice if I had an extensive Blu-ray collection like you do. <laughs> yeah. You just watch E.T. and actually see the, like, layers and depth of the fucking atmosphere yeah. and stuff. You know? Yeah, the atmosphere. And but that's where we're at, man. That's where we're at. Todd Haynes puts a lot of effort into something, and then it's, it's presented in this fucking... Bullshit a way. bunch of stupid fucking Silicon Valley guys shit out an algorithm to present it to us. Like, Honestly, that's pretty on theme with the movie, too. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, man, I think we should wrap up. Uh, would you say that's that, Mattress Man? That's that.